Attention, please. Eastern Airlines Flight 19, now ready for departure. Welcome aboard the Walt Disney World Express Monorail. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're entering the vacation kingdom of the world. There's enough land here to hold all the ideas and plans we could possibly imagine. We call it Epcot. Will be our experimental prototype city of tomorrow. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast. Taking you back to the vacation kingdom of the world, the way it was, and the way it is in your memories. Welcome to another episode of the Retro Disney World Podcast, the official podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society. This is episode 55, Backstage Tour, where we'll be taking you on a tour of the MGM Studios in 1989 with the original trams and the original sets and everything in the back back lot. So, But before we get started, let's welcome the team here. Uh, sitting with me, as always, is Mr. J.T. Couser. How are you doing tonight, J.T.? I am great. Uh, man, I always wonder what to say on these intros, but now I, I know because we've been practicing for an hour here. Uh, <laughs> we've had a few technical glitches. Yeah, I, I just got back from Disney. Uh, you know, it's super exciting down there. I had lots of fun, and um, now we're back to the gray dystopian world of Fred, uh, January in Ohio. So. Uh, yeah, not fun. Not yeah, fun. It's all so. good. Well, down in the warm tropics is Mr. Howe Bowers. How are you doing tonight? <clears throat> Aloha. I am doing just fine, thank you. <clears throat> Despite good, my good, good. strange coughing noises. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And also coming to us from the city of brotherly love is Mr. Brian P. Miles, which uh, you're back in the swing of the hockey and all that stuff, right? You got your... Got your season passes, seeing some games, and uh, but you made it down to Florida too to see how and some friends. I did. Greetings and salutations. Uh, I and Happy New Year. I uh, I escaped over the Christmas week to Walt Disney World Resort in Central Florida, and I'm now back in the veritable winter wonderland of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania here, uh, anxiously awaiting my next trip uh, out of Pennsylvania to some place warmer until it gets warmer here itself. That's right. That's right. So I hope everybody uh, out there had a great holiday season. And as Brian said, Happy New Year. And uh, JT, I have to thank you for the little trinkets you, you sent. You, uh, uh, Ohio Steak Sauce or something I got to give a whirl to. And um, Great some, Lakes some Brewing. Bo- yeah, it's bo- their... Uh, great Lakes Brewing, yeah. That's yeah, pretty good. I, I used it the other night. I put some on How some uh, pork tenderloin, uh, sliced pork tenderloin. It was delicious. Nice, uh, nice. It's the Great Lakes Brewing Company Christmas Ale Glaze. Yes. Todd, I, I used some salad dressing from you the other night. What'd you think? All right, so I got it ready. I've been waiting for this. <laughs> I, I shook it like crazy. I, uh, you know, grabbed it to port, and by the time I grabbed it to port, it had already resettled instantly. <laughs> I'm like, is, what? I mean, you, you literally have to shake it while you're pouring to keep the, yeah. the mixture, whatever, the oils and the the vinegars together. When the bottle gets a little low, it's easier to. to it was shake good. It, it was very good, though. I liked it. I love it. I, it's, it's For all of our really confused great, so. listeners, Todd sent each of us a bottle of, like, Aunt Fanny's magic oil dressing or something like that. Yeah, it was good. From Framingham, Massachusetts. It's called Fanny's uh, Italian Dressing. It's good stuff. Okay. Well, before we uh, get started and roll into the main topic, well, as always, we kind of go back and comments and corrections. And uh, I just wanted to make a, a, a 
real quick mention here is that this is episode 55. We did do a mini episode. So if you haven't listened to 54.5, certainly give a listen to that where we talk with Tom Tierney and Lisa Bastoni uh, about bringing the world closer to you. Tom Tierney was the lyricist and um, musician behind that um, piece. And uh, how we had a great time. That was a, you know, an episode, mini episode that uh, I think, I think we uncovered more than we expected. In fact, Absolutely. It was a whole I mean, behind the music episode. <laughs> it really was. It really was. Um, and uh, yeah, we found out that the original song was seven minutes. Uh, we played Lisa's uh, her her version of the song from uh, from Retro Magic, which uh, I've we've gotten a couple tweets that people keep playing and can't get it out of their head. So uh, it's a great listen. So just want to remind people to take a take a listen to that if you haven't heard or if you just gloss over our mini episodes. Some of them are really good. So give give them a listen as well. But uh, with that, uh, JT, I'm going to turn it over to you for the mailbag, um, dragging it back out through the snow. What do you, what do you got? Uh, it actually was a slower month. I think the holidays kind of, uh, you know, put a damper. People are mailing Christmas cards and not letters to us. So uh, get, <laughs> get the letters coming again. We uh, had a few. Uh, first one is from Rob. He says, hey, guys, I wondered if you had any information about the Epcot VIP lounges, specifically the Kodak lounge of which I've only been able to find one photo. I've done a lot of research on the others, but would be interested to see if you knew any more. Keep up the great work, Rob. Well, I'll start, but I know Howard's been in some of them as well. But So I actually was in the Kodak Lounge, which was part of the journey into imagination and various uh, attractions that came after it. Uh, Pavilion in Epcot, and I think that's the one he asked about. And in that pavilion, uh, it's it was actually around the back behind where uh, the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids theater and and the um, gift shop and all is. It's around the back side of the building. And uh, I was in it a year after Kodak ended its sponsorship. So Kodak's sponsorship of the pavilion ended in 2010. And I think I was in there maybe around 2011 on an undiscovered Future World tour, one of the Epcot tours that they run. Uh, what I remember about it uh, is it was very dark. It had a very that that particular lounge was very kind of low slung and dark. It had these like brown leather uh, seats in it, like uh, you know oversized chairs and stuff like that, um, and very long. Like it was a long, dark kind of just lots of brown, just brown everywhere. Um, like an 80s lounge it, would feel. Yeah, right? I mean, but it, but it, I mean, it survived. I mean, I saw it in t- 2011, and the pictures, the few pictures I've seen from before that look like yeah, it was largely not changed much over the years. Now, I, I've actually been in the Sp- Spaceship Earth one, which was Siemens, and before that, the Bell system and AT&T. Uh, I have been in one from the health pavilion, the Wonders of Life, that was the MetLife, because they used to open that. And I have, obviously, we were in the one from GM and World of Motion. And Norway, which was, I guess, the Norwegian Tourism Board or whatever, I guess, used that originally, that little lounge we were in upstairs for... Yeah, oh, yeah, so, yeah. So, and, That's very and then the American smart. Express Coca-Cola lounge that was over top of American Adventure. Uh, I I don't know. I was never in the Exxon one, but they all were pretty much the same 
and there was a craft one uh, on the third floor of uh, the land, which you can see some internet videos of people sneaking up there now that's used for training and things like that. The Kodak ones I talked about were converted to, it's all, that's all office space now for Imagineering and park operations. They did the same thing with the uh, Exxon ones once their sponsorship ended at Universe of Energy. Uh, they turned into uh, like park ops and Imagineering offices, and uh, so obviously now that they're building the the new pavilions, they've they've relocated those folks. But uh, that's what has kind of happened with them. They've either be as as the sponsorships have ended and Disney's ended sponsorships of rides uh, attractions. They are basically either get converted to office space or some other use, or they end up becoming private party venues like the Living Seas Lounge that we were in that was United Technologies, which is really nice. Uh, so, But they're all basically the same formula. There was They were staffed by representatives of the sponsor, so it would be a craft employee or a GM employee. Uh, they're, not, they're not Disney employees. And they would check you in. Uh, I was actually in the Siemens one when they were sponsoring Spaceship Earth, as a guest of someone with Siemens. Uh, and so they would like get a little code to be able to get in and uh, you go up and there's usually a drink machine and bottles of water and uh, promotional materials and basically just a place to kind of sit, use a quiet bathroom and relax for a little bit. And on the ones that were attached to attractions, I know with the Siemens one, there was a separate uh, door we could go into to skip the line for Spaceship Earth. And I think most of the, uh, I know that GM had the same thing with Test Track uh, so most of them had some kind of a door or queue area where you could uh, come down and skip the line to get on the attraction. It's fair. These are so fascinating to me. There's a, a site out there, which I'll, I'll link in the show notes. He's he's actually uh, reached out to us and uh, used some of our photos and stuff too, but they, they're just so crazy to me. that Did you see the magic mirror when you were in the Siemens one? I'm sure I did because we like spent, yeah. you know, what, what, what was magic about it. Apparently, if you stood in front of it, it overlaid like a Snapchat filter, you know, like over your face, like a, a wig or something, it, you know, like a cartoon. Possibly. I mean, I, I have pictures. I'd have to go back and look at them. Then the other one, which uh, I, I think looks so 80s, is the Horizons one he's got on his site, too. Yeah, um, I obviously never saw that. Yeah, the GE Executive Club. So just super cool, though. They're definitely, I don't know, They're it's a unique thing to me. So Yeah, the GE one had all sorts of tiles and glass block. Yeah, glass block tiles and stuff, really. There was a Hewlett Packard one, too, at the Mission Space, mm. um, which I don't know what is being done with it now. But. Yeah, he's got some stuff on that one. It's actually, the entrance is outside, and then it uh, it had a postcards from Space Booth, but he does state it's not open to the public anymore, so... But very cool. Okay, well, thanks, Brian. Appreciate that uh, little info there. Next up, uh, next up, we have a uh, letter from an unknown. Uh, I don't have a name or an email. Uh, they say uh, she or he or she says, "My mom remembers buying a fog machine at Innoventions. Do you know what store or experience that was? Do we have any information on Halloween Adventure fog machines? It was Halloween really? Adventure? No. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, spirit, wow, spirit of Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> they they put a spirit Halloween in interventions when it closed. Obviously, <laughs> well, they, they had the, they, they, the big that's what it does. banner on the outside. Yeah. <laughs> Anybody buy a fog machine or any of that? Uh, I, I'm imagining it's like uh, that stuff that used to be in the uh, what's the 
the the big mall type store that was yeah. over there, Mouse Gears. What was that called? Well, Centorium uh, was yes. was still going during the era of interventions for sure, and being at the, in the department store format, you know, it had a bunch of different things that you could buy. You know, it was almost like a sharper image in in some ways. So there was a bunch of Disney merchandise. But then there were also things like the chess sets that would play themselves with like the magnetic sliders and oh yeah and you know jewelry items and all, all kinds of all kinds of crazy stuff. So I mean, it wouldn't necessarily be shocking that uh, that they would carry an item like that. So I mean, I, I think that's the most reasonable guess. There weren't any like pop up stores or anything within Interventions. Uh, the one super outside chance, and what I don't know is if she actually got it there or. Uh, whether she intended to get it after seeing it there. And uh, I will say this name wrong. It's he- that Hemaker Schlemmer. That's, mm. You said it right. Oh, That's right, yeah. let's hear it for me. Um, they actually had uh, a small display at, um, at Interventions at one point. No way. Yes, wow. they did. And um, they had stuff like... Um, I, I, the one thing that I remember is they had a breakfast machine. So it was a device, kind of like JT's like hot dog maker that makes like the hot dog and the buns and the toaster all at once. It was a uh, a coffee maker. And then there was a place that you would put an egg in it. And uh, in the morning, it would automatically start your coffee. And then it would had a little cutting device. So it would like cut the bottom off of an egg and then drop the egg down into a frying pan and make like a Sounds little like peewee's big was, adventure here yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like you want to trust that sunday morning at 5 a.m just to make everything and not that, burn the that, house down like golden age of like 70s to 90s of just zany appliances that tried to do like seven different things that's right yeah and it had all kinds of it was a i know probably had 20 products in it all kinds of different stuff uh, but yeah, that was that was part of Interventions too. So I mean, that's another that's likely cool. place. Although I didn't know if you could ever actually buy there, or if they'd give you a catalog and then you'd go home and order it. Weird. Okay. Well, that's there's awesome. there's some fog machine info. I'm, I'm sticking with Halloween Adventure myself. I'm so. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be curious if they still have the fog machine. You know, we could. It's a Disney branded fog machine, perhaps. That's well, the one thing that did end up in stores at that time, it wasn't so much a fog machine as it was an atomizer. So there'd be like a little display thing with a plant or something in it. And then, uh, you know, there'd be like a tube and then it would, with a pump and it would suck it into a thing. So it would basically turn it into like water vapor. So it wasn't, you know, like a traditional Halloween fog machine that would fill the room with fog. It was like a mister almost like they have those mm. little, uh, now there's, they have scents that like spray out the scents that way where it looks like there's this little fog mm-hmm. that's constantly coming out of it. Um, cause in the nineties, diffusers, yes. yeah, diffuser. I thought, Oh, that, that would be a really cool effect if you wanted to do a smoke effect or something at home. It's like, that would be a great way to do it. I, th- I think they're probably 80 or $90 at that point. I'm sure it's much more, uh, affordable these days. All right. Well, next up. Uh, this is from Dane. Dane says, Hello, I'm wondering if you have any images of any ephemera from the mid-70s shopping village, uh, possibly Toys Fantastique. We visited Disney World in 1977 when I won a two-week trip there, and I remember that we visited the village at least once. I uh, would love to see some images to help bring back some memories. Thanks so much, Dane. And the first person I thought of this when I thought of images and ephemera is Todd, because Todd has been hard at work recently um, on this aspect of our site. So, Todd, 
Yeah, so we've been hard at work um, working to recatalog and improve the search engine that's behind all of our photos. So we've got twelve over 12,000 photos, of which many don't have descriptions or are in the wrong places. But um, aside from that, um, and, and I want to thank all of our volunteers, too. We have volunteers that are behind the scenes um, tagging these. We've written some software so that we could put quick titles on them and tag them. Uh, but what I did is I went and... and fixed up the search engine and uh, fixed some bugs in it and expanded its capabilities in order to find uh, photos much easier. So the great news is, is I just did a search on just the word fantastique and sure enough, came up with 11 results. And what, what's really great about it is that it will also show you the gallery it's in. So I can click on the Lake Buena Vista Shopping Village Gallery and it will immediately show me all the different photos that are in there. And we have many more coming that we're tagging and putting into the right uh, sections of the site. So if you go to retrowdw.com, there's a photos and slides section. And if you click on the photo archive or photo archive search, you can go right in there. And even from our main search bar, the little magnifying glass, just click that and you'll see search galleries. So a lot of great stuff. And like I said, a big thank you and shout out to all those that are helping uh, on this massive project. Um, I think of the of the 12,000 photos, somewhere around eight to 9,000 require tags and and expanded description so we've got a lot of work to do and the more we tag and the more we f fill the stuff in the easier it will be to find everything so and i keep scanning um, more so it's... yeah and brian just keeps throwing more at it <laughs> so there's a lot of great things in there and todd some uh, of those but, photos are your personal photos aren't yeah they? i was to say i see a young yep. todd mccartney in toys fantastique that is me and yep i am in there so uh that's on the yep, gold key plan you can pick out anything <laughs> he's got a, a bodyguard a handler He's like Peter Brady in that Toy Story. He's just picking out things every from every aisle. <laughs> and I don't know the episode number, but I know that we talked about it pretty extensively in our Lake Buena Vista episode. So, oh yeah, we did. Um, I, I can pull that up because both Todd and I have very fond memories of shopping in that two-story store. So uh, we'll find that episode number. You can go back and you can listen to us uh, tell you all and about it. And it's, uh, the store is still there. It, I believe it houses it housed um, Star Wars stuff the last time I was there. It's um, kind of kitty quarter across from uh, the Christmas shop at, at Disney Springs over on that side. Um, but yeah, the, the second story is gone, but the eaves and everything are still there with, with the wood um, that's there. So um, yeah, one, I mean, the, the photo archive, it's going to be very handy for all of us, too, because we're going to be able to pull things up immediately and, and really kind of get an idea of what we have. And um, I should t let people know, too, that we're doing extensive tagging work on it to the point where if we're seeing something in the photo, like a shopping bag or a trash can or a construction crane or something like that, um, or if you're on the Skyway and it's a picture of 20K, you, you'd be able to pull up the search results for 20,000 leagues under the sea or the skyway so adding a lot of those different things so if you can say oh you know what was that trash can or or what was under construction um i will caution you do not search just search on epcot or magic kingdom because you'll basically blow the server up it'll just give you everything because almost all of them are tagged it'll bring up a couple thousand of them so i don't know have you guys tried it have tried the new search out yet have you given it a whirl a little bit yeah it's it's very uh I'd say it's pulling up more than it used to, which makes me happy. And I haven't done to the the depths that you just said, you know, the Skyway and the the 20K, but you know, it's definitely yep. uh, I like it much much better for sure. Well, the great part is if you put in Epcot Fountain, you should see all the hits now, all the fountain photos. So which is cool, so cool. 
Thank you to everybody who's been pitching in on that. All right, JT, does that wrap up the mail? Yeah, it does yeah. for now. we got a big topic, so uh, you know, we're going to get to that here in a minute. Uh, but if you want to touch base with us, reach out. Uh, send an email to podcast at retrowdw.com. Uh, you can tweet at us. You can uh, pretty much any way you can get hold of us. We will look for you on there, social media, anywhere, and also uh, subscribe to us on YouTube. And you can comment on a video as well, and we'll uh, look through those and possibly put you on a future episode. All right, well, it's time for this month's Audio Rewind. And um, Hal, you've been picking these out, you know, and I just wanted to tell you, you broke another record. I meant it. I'm, I'm going to guess what it is, but please go ahead and say. <laughs> All right, so Hal has been selecting these for the past couple of months, and he's he's done some doozies. Well, you have uh, you have certainly given them a doozy. You've got a record number of, of, uh, of entries this month at 10. <laughs> so you stumped them all uh and of that only three were correct wow okay so so why don't we play it and then i'll talk about what it is and then why i thought we would get a lot more so there we go yeah. let's take a listen to last month's audio rewind All right, so that was the opening of Holiday Illuminations. And with everybody talking about Illuminations and the changes of it going to Epcot Forever and then Illuminus and all the holiday hubbub, I thought for sure that people would would pick up on that. But apparently I was wrong. (laughs) So, but we did, we had three people and we did randomly pick a winner of those three. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to say that uh, uh, Beth Goldman got, got correct. So uh, from Maine, we'll be sending you the ornament set to put on your holiday tree, Christmas tree, or decorate your house with next year. And um, so, but, uh, so how are you picking on out already that, that m- maybe more people can become involved with? Yeah, we'll, we'll pick something a little more accessible for this month. So For the three there people in the audience who remember Johnny Carson playing Stump the Band. <laughs> That's Howard right. Has succeeded, Brian. You've got something to give away this this month, right? I do. Um, our, our friend Marty Sklar's, uh, the late Marty Sklar's book, "Dream It, Do It," uh, has come up a bunch in the last month. So I'll give away a copy of that. Excellent. So that copy of that book will go to the person who knows the answer to this month's audio rewind. <laughs> If you think you know the answer to this month's Audio Rewind, send your guesses to contest at retrowww.com. All correct entries must be received by February 17th, 2020, and all correct entries will be entered into a random drawing to pick the winner on next month's episode. All right, well, it is time to get into this month's main topic, and um, I must say... I'm, I'm, I'm excited for it because it, uh, I have vivid memories of getting on this attraction uh, just a few months after its opening. Uh, JT, this is coming into your, your, you know, your area of expertise and your time frame where you really started remembering your trips down there. Um, how you were there opening day. So you've got some comparisons. We're going to talk about the backstage tram tour, which has gone through umpteen name changes and <laughs> modifications and 
So I think we're going to focus more on opening day, but then talk about some of the things that did evolve over time. And I've got a couple that I, I swear from 1989 to writing again 91, there were so many changes that it almost didn't even feel like the same attract. We're going to kind of concentrate on the beginning stages. Like you said, there were a lot of changes over the course of time. Things changed and the whole tram tour got turned around. I kind of didn't ride during that time period, so I'm sure there was there were stuff that I missed. But we'll, we'll touch on some of the highlights of the changes, but we, we'll probably have to loop back around again to talk about the closing days at some point mm -hmm. in the future. Once Lights Motors action went in, is like a completely different thing. So there wasn't much left. Yeah, that. but but yeah, let's 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 go back to the beginning. Let's let's uh let's get in the Wayback Machine and go back to 1989. You're at Disney MGM Studios, and uh, there was really two parts to the park. So there was the theme park, and then there was the actual production studio, and that's that's kind of the way that it was divided up. Although if you were <laughs> In the park, you probably didn't think of it that way. But the concept was, once you went up Hollywood Boulevard, which was in the, the theme park part of it, and you turned to right through that big gate, which used to have the Disney MGM logo on it, and then later on has different versions of the Disney's Hollywood Studio logo on it. After you right. walked through that gate, you were in the production area. So you were in the place where movies were actually being made. Hot set, hot set. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so you had, you know, you, you had the animation studio there. Uh, and this this was kind of your access to the tour of the back lot. Uh, and, and we've talked about it was really broken up into two sections. Uh, a tram tour, and that's the part that we're going to talk about tonight. And then there was a walking tour through the post-production facilities and the special effects and... We're not going to do that tonight. That's way too much to try to cover in one episode. Oh, yeah. So that's that's going to be a separate one. So today we're, we're just going to talk about the tram tour. Um, so today, if you were to walk through those gates, uh, in front of you would be the way to get into the um, Star Wars launch bay. Had a big shiny red sign above it. Um, and the queue, and the, we're going to talk about the queue in a second, I think, Hal. But the, the queue is still there today. You can see some of the original tram uh, if you look carefully and know where to look, you can see some of the original tram road and the turnaround. It's yeah. still there today. It's, it's, it has not moved. So if you can envision that, it was a, it was a, you know, it was purposely done to t be tucked like you were going through this thing and you were going to be getting on this tram that took you backstage. Yeah, and it was all at this point the queue was all outside. Um, <laughs> there's the, there's no inside. It's like you're going to walk out. So on opening day and for for a couple of years afterwards, when the park was very popular. And there weren't a lot of attractions. It's like you would wait outside in that queue, you know, for an hour in the in the in the wonderful Florida humidity. And it was covered with with fans, but it, still it was. But it's still pretty pretty hot out yep. there. Um, and and the only thing that you kind of had uh, to entertain you, I'm trying to remember if there were TVs in there. I, I remember there were were there. Yeah, there were TVs. They were over. It was Tom Selleck and Carol Burnett. Ah, that's where that ran. Okay. And and we should also mention that this was um, 1989 and 90 was really the the start of where there was entertainment in some form or another in the queues. Universal did it, and all the other uh, you know attractions around Disney started to add in um, televisions over overhead with that would play loops of different things. Uh, I kind of remember these what big. 21 22 inch crts maybe even 30 inch hung very huge with special safety cables so they wouldn't come down on people they were sony's um, too is because of the sony sponsorship deal so all the tvs right. were sony's for the first years 
Exactly, exactly. And Burnbaum notes, too, that uh, there's some funny comments from, from such luminaries as Mel Brooks, Clint Eastwood, Richard Dreyfuss, Robert Zemeckis, Francis Ford Coppola, and Eddie Murphy. So they had the big names oh, okay, to okay. kick it off. That's good. Um, See, and then we, all down the side, there were all those movie posters and different things about the Disney studio. Yeah, I remember the Duratrans displays that were kind of in the middle. So these are kind of like yes. large banks of uh, backlit uh, displays. And and the one that I always liked was there was like a big, uh, a really nice clear picture of an audio animatronic head in there. Oh. And, and uh, the all of the stuff that you saw in the displays are basically setting you up for the things that you were going to see during the two parts of the tram tour. So between the TVs and these displays, it was hopefully uh, entertaining. And uh, before we get too far into this, I just want to give a shout out to uh, someone who provided me with a lot of good reference photos um, for today. Um, and that is uh, Bob Rowan. So Bob, thanks for your photos from, from the 90s up uh, to 94. Uh, it was helpful to kind of put some things in place. It's like, I've got some video and some pictures and Todd had some video and some pictures. And of course there's stuff out on YouTube, but Rob sent us some um, beautiful photos on Twitter uh, that really helped uh, solve a couple of the questions that I had while I was working on this. So as a, as a South Jersey man, Bob celebrate with some pork roll. That's, <laughs> yeah. There we go. And we also, have, we have to thank him too, because we, we, none of us had the right version of burn bombs. I put a call out on Twitter and Bob supplied, supplied us at the last minute some scans of the pages that we were looking for. So um, thanks to Bob for that as well. So uh, he's an honorary member tonight on, on the Awesome. <laughs> so, uh, so you would come out uh, after you saw the TVs and there was a really nice topiary of Mickey Mouse holding a, you know, like a film clapboard. And we should also notice too that this entrance area where you were about to board the tram, it, it didn't even last 10 years. It was not there very long before. I mean, by 1999, that area was paved over. The animation building was added. I forget where where'd you board. I can't even remember where you boarded the tram after that. It was that you walked through that like metal garage door opening, right? Are you talking? Oh, or am yeah, I going we'll too there. far ahead? I don't know. No, that's no, that's true. No, that's that, you, right. You did eventually go through there, and I think at a different point in time, you ended up boarding where the exit once was. But I'm not like right. I said. There were so many changes; it was hard to. Keep There's little track of little that. tweaks, and it's almost like the uh, the speedway modifications yeah. to the track. You know, you could do <laughs> exactly. an overlay gif it's true. again. It did keep it did keep getting smaller and smaller too. Yeah, it was almost at some point it was like, why, why are we even doing this? You know, it's, 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 it was a short <laughs> ride, but I, but you know, we have to also understand that the reason that they had this ride too was that this was a direct competition to uh, Orlando's. Uh, your very own Universal Studios. Yeah. Brand, right. They needed a, a, a ride to combat that. And, you know, with the whole working studio um, set up, um, this was meant to compete with that because Hollywood had a tram ride, but the Universal Studios tour in Orlando did not. So this was kind of trying to one up them. It actually did when it opened. And it, oh, that's right. It, it went down the street. Very short time. <laughs> it short was time. like, I couldn't, that's one of those rides. I think we waited an hour for that. And I was like, that was it. I think it lasted less than, it was like six, seven minutes and it was done. It was like riding a tram through a, through a theme park, right? Yeah. It was, it, was. it was really silly. We're going to take you down the streets that you can walk on normally. So <laughs> we're done. Anyhow. So, so you would uh, see, so you pass the Mickey Topiary and then you'd wait for these really nice, big, beautiful red tractors with uh with doors that would like flip open open and actually these these tractors stayed the entire time they were there so if you if you saw it later on it's it's the same one it's the same same thing they had the the red paint job with the 
at that time the, the studios was decked out in a motif of, of red with a black trapezoids or rhombuses and, and blue dots and all that. And they yep. were decorated on the side. And it was like a tan top. And the whole right side, when you pulled up, you had to stand behind the line. There were no automated gates. You, you could have gotten run over by these things. Um, but the the very similar to way that you get on rides now, too, is that there were a set number of um, corrals, if you will, or metal fences that were angled. So when you when they counted you off and stood in there, just like you do for any attraction, uh, they wait made you stay behind the line because if you didn't, it, you'd be like you know Chevy Chase getting whacked in the head by a swinging door or something coming yes. up and, and knocking you over. They were pretty heavy doors. I, I'm surprised people didn't get their foot caught in them. I mean, I'm sure there have been. <laughs> they were. Yeah, and they flip up like this big, huge swing up mechanism, like the I don't even know, like you're open. They're the, gull wings, right? Yeah, it's yeah, like a DeLorean. Yeah, 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 that's exactly right. Yeah. And I don't believe there was any way to open the left side too. I think they were only designed for the right side. Yeah, that's correct. Because there was, they did all the load and unload from the right. Yep. And um, what I what I found out is that the tram, the tractor part of it, was actually engineered and built by a company called Triad Services Group in Madison Heights, Wisconsin. So, thank you, Triad Services Group. They were beefy, big tires and everything. Yep. And um, their turning radius. I'm gonna I'm gonna really geek out here. <laughs> I have in front here. I have the original scale model of the entire mall. (laughs) (laughs) The Triad Services sales brochure from '88. I didn't have time to paint it. (laughs) I I will say while you're you're digging, when we walked onto this, now this was I think we went in '90 was the first year we went. Um, We we were used to the the trams hauling us around Fort Wilderness, and they had them. You know that was how you jump the internal service loop for the guests. They didn't have those doors, so like. If you were running up to the bus stop at your hotel, you know, your your loop and the tram's pulling away, well, you could, if you were smart, hop on the back one as it's slowly rolling away. I think something happened. Somebody got run over because those disappeared to the Disney buses. So when these showed up, we were like, hey, the trams are back. Oh, they got these big doors on them now because the campers ruined it. Like, that was what we thought at the time. But, um, yeah, that was the first tram ride I took, uh, you know, since Fort Wilderness for a number of years. Well, what's what's really interesting is that the 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 width of the circle is only about eighty some feet on the outside, and the inside is fifty feet. That's a really really tight radius to pull something and have all what eight or nine cars, whatever it was, follow well, around. Well, they did make. Oh no, there were there were only actually I don't know how many cars there were. Four, I've got one five? over here on the overhead. One, two, three, four, five. There was five. Okay. In the but they could somehow make very close to 90 degree turns because a lot of the streets yep. back there were pretty normal. So, Exactly. So you had a turning radius of somewhere between 50 and 80 feet, you know, on the inside or the outside, which is pretty, pretty cool. So there's some, if you go into Google Maps, you can look at the, uh, the from 1995 and take a look. It's pretty, nice. pretty sharp picture. All right. So let's get on the tram. Yeah, let's get on the trams. Hi, everyone. Welcome aboard. Please do it now before we get going, because once we are in motion, for your own safety, we must ask that you do remain seated at all times. Keep your hands, your feet, and everything else you have with you today inside the shuttle. And now that we are all seated, we're all clear. So here's something I just found out today. Uh, the show, the tram spiel and, and uh, the rest of the writing on, on that whole tour, was actually produced and written by Tom Fitzgerald, the Beach Boy from hey, Horizons. Look at that. Look so there he was, still still doing stuff uh, back then. Uh, so I just I got go one other thing to add here. I'll I'll edit this and put it in. So, uh, you know, Brian and JT, you guys were just 
waiting with your boarding passes and boarding groups for Rise of the Resistance last month and uh, just a couple of days ago. So I wanted to, there's another line from Birnbaum here that uh, the there is a sign and it warns visitors that at, from this point on, it's a 45 minute wait um, and that Birnbaum recommends that uh, your time will be better spent at another attraction if you are waiting be- behind that 45. 45 sounds like a blessing uh, for some of today's rides, right? Maybe not for this uh, attraction, wait, Todd. Huh? Well, back then... Uh, yeah, well, it was the time like a four-hour experience, wasn't it? Yeah. It, it, well, it was. It Two was. And, and you know what time we... The video that we have, we arrived at 6.30, and we opened the gates at 7 and walked right over to it. And that's that's... That's what you did. And, was... and this then, too, this was the, I mean, I, I don't know about you guys, but I feel like this was one of the main reasons you went to this park. There wasn't much else to do. And, I mean, there was a couple shows and things, but as far as, like, moving vehicles and rides that we were used to at a park, this was one of was... two, I think, wasn't it? Yes. You had this and the great movie ride, and other than that, there was no Star Tours. Uh, you had the Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular. You had Superstar Television and the Sounds Danger, or Monster Sound Show. And um, other than that, the the tram and the walking tour, that's it. That's your day. <laughs> so I came to the studio. Um, I want to see the studio. So 45 minutes, that you're going to wait point. it. Yep. All right, let's take a ride. I'd like to officially welcome you to our studios. We are the Orlando counterpart of the Walt Disney Studios out in Burbank, California. Here we feature sound stages, outdoor sets, state-of-the-art editing, recording studios, basically everything you need to make a motion picture or a television show. All right, so you get on. You drive past the animation building, and then you use uh, Todd's tight turning radius to do a 180-degree turn, and you pass by... A little bit closer to the ground here on your right is our prop warehouse. The prop warehouse. Uh, Now, what you would see a lot of times are kind of racks outside with a bunch of different miscellaneous objects. These were larger size props. You could see everything from, like, uh, uh, those red London telephone booths and just all kinds of miscellaneous junk outside. Uh, when the tour first started, you'd, there was a parking area outside of it and it was usually kind of empty. Um, but as time went on over the years, some of the vehicles that were out in the boneyard or by the loony bin were moved here. Um, specifically, later on, you would see the the um, the police spinner from Blade Runner and another car from Blade oh, yeah. Runner, the red Lamborghini from Hardcastle and McCormick. Uh, those were parked at the exit of the tram ride originally, but uh, things kind of ended up moving over there. Um, From the beginning, though, you would see a car from the Untouchables. And then within a very short period of time, all of a sudden, like a bunch of cars from Dick Tracy showed up because they had like, I don't know, a dozen. And that was going to be one of my questions that, you know, you opened here and, you know, you're a year into, not even a year into this and you've got all these props. So it begs the question, where the heck did they get half of this stuff? So they must have been storing stuff in their Hollywood studio and just decide what to ship out and what would make sense to put there. I mean, they were going to use it, but they had to send stuff that they would use. Um, And obviously a lot of the stuff was never used. It was just there to demonstrate. Um, Blue Thunder was there, the, the helicopter. That's right. Yep. That was further on, yeah. And I, to your point, Todd, I, th- I think there is there are probably some stories, one in particular that I'll get into, about where the hell did these props come from? Because <laughs> yeah. they were, some of them were seemingly random. I kind of felt mm-hmm. like they just went around and got, someone had a budget to go around and get some stuff because they needed something. And yeah, I mean, they, there's like some rock work, right? Well, where does this rock work from? And when are you ever going to need like a, a yellow kayak again? And yeah. that's the stuff that you would see. And I don't know if they necessarily wanted to ship big items from California to 
Orlando, you know, in some cases they did, but really I, I think some of the stuff was locally acquired ish. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't know. There's definitely some more research and be fun to talk to someone who was involved with that. Maybe we will find that person one day. Um, yeah. But let's get back on the tram tours. Take a look off to your left. You'll see our bungalows, and that's just a fancy Hollywood term for office space. Bungalow number one is home to the Goofy Games. Bungalow number two is CK Productions. And bungalow number three is the permanent home of the Mickey Mouse Club. You make a right-hand turn, and then you go past the bungalows. Now, these didn't look like like traditional, like, cool turn-of-the-century or, you know, turn-of-the-19th-century bungalows. It's like they were just kind of like uh, long... Uh, metal buildings that held offices for productions that were using the studio facilities. Um, initially, there were three of them, but a fourth one was added by the time the park opened. And it was really, seriously, just production offices. So someone would come in to, you know, do a show, and it was almost like there were three or four doors and windows in the front, and they would just, you know, give the production team some places with desks and things to work in. So and that that was those were on the left hand side of the tram and I think right before you did that too they would tell you to get your cameras ready because you could see see the Airful Tower too that yeah was, ex- that was a big portion of it too like get your cameras ready for those on the right hand side exactly you know, if yeah. you're on the left sorry buy the postcard <laughs> <laughs> so this is good because I do want to talk about the Airful Tower next your first photo opportunity is coming up high in the sky to your right. That's the symbol and landmark of our studios. It's our award-winning Earful Tower. It does stand 13 stories tall and is capped off by a giant set of Mickey Mouse ears that weigh 16 tons. And for all of you trivia buffs, that is a half size of 342 and 3 eighths. So the first thing that I think is important to talk about the Earful Tower, which I actually didn't know, is its spelling. It's actually spelled with two F's, which I assume is supposed to be a takeoff on the way Eiffel spelled his name. Mm. So technically, it's spelled E-A-R-F-F-U-L. Okay. Earful Tower. And it's not E-A-R-F-U-L. <laughs> it's double F. Don't ask me why. You have to see if, what, Ferdinand Eiffel or... I think over the years we've dropped the second F because every reference I've ever seen to it, including all the ones from Disney when they were taking it down. Exactly. One F, not two. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Uh, so the guides would, would tell you that it was an award-winning tower. And I was like, what <laughs> award would this... Tower possible? What? <laughs> Hold on, I got it. It's the tallest water tank and lightest that didn't hold water. <laughs> it, you're close. I'm close. You're okay. close. It actually. So so here's what we here's what I found out about the Airful Tower. It was actually made by a company called Caldwell Tanks in Louisville, Kentucky, which has been making water tanks since 1887. Um, wow. It is a 100,000 gallon double ellipsoidal elevated water tank. Uh, its style is a multi-column elevated storage tank, which the industry calls a leg, which I suppose is because it stands up on legs. It is 130 feet to- high. Uh, 130 feet high. The the tour guides would occasionally refer to it as being 13 stories. Oh, it's our lucky 13 story tower. Um, <laughs> the tank part. <laughs> was actually 22 feet high and 28.5 uh, feet across. And the spiel that they'd always give is that would that means that the Mickey ears that were on his head because it was done like a as if it was wearing a Mickey hat uh, would mm-hmm. be a size 342 and 5 eighths. 
There so it is. That's straight out of the press release. Um, it, each ear weighed 5,000 pounds. The, the tank and ears together weighed 16 tons, uh, which is 32,000 pounds. Uh, and it cost $234,500. Oh, a bargain. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Prob- which probably makes it maybe the cheapest park icon yeah i mean probably the mad, yeah. the, i mean the castle and spaceship earth obviously were expensive so here's what it won it won the 1987 tank of the year award presented <laughs> oh, by yeah. presented by the steel tank institute steel plate fabricators association and i was like 1987 but it turns out it was actually constructed uh yeah, beginning was, in ni- in 1987 it, it was um, there early yeah, so it was it was one of the first things built. You know, the studio opened up for actual work uh, mm-hmm. in 1988. So yeah, we we should briefly explain why the water tower, like the significance of it. The studios, uh, all the Hollywood studios, had a tower, a water tower on the lots back in the golden age of Hollywood, uh, that contained real water, mostly to put out fires because they did a lot of flammable stuff there. And that was uh, there was not the underwater pipe systems that exist now. Most of those Hollywood studios were built before uh, those water services were in place. Uh, so they had these water towers on the sites of the movie studios to uh, be able to put fires out and have a supply of water there. Uh, now, my understanding, Brian, although I, I don't have any further evidence, but supposedly the water in the water tower was somehow also used to temperature control the sound stages. And I don't know how that was done, but apparently that may have science. been it another science. function. <laughs> and it might have just been the water ran through pipes in the walls. Um, now, they didn't do this at the Disney MGM Studios here in Florida, but apparently in old Hollywood, that may have been something that was done. Um, I, I just don't know enough about water towers. So um, <laughs> nobody well, does. I've, I've never been to a tank of the year ceremony. So my, <laughs> yeah. knowledge is, my knowledge is limited to knowing that Warner brothers had a cool, uh, uh, water tower and universal and paramount. They all had these cool water towers that you could see from beyond the gates. Yeah. And that was actually a nice thing about this water tower. It was very close to world drive. So you could see it as you were driving down uh, on your way to the Magic Kingdom or Epcot. So you're like, hey, look. Earful Tower. There's Disney MGM right there. Um, It also had a ring of lights around the ear line and around the cap line. So it was visible at night. Uh, Yeah, at Christmas time, they would put a Santa. The first few years, they put a Santa hat on it. I saw that that one one year. And then we also saw uh, the 101 Dalmatian paint job it got. Um, It wore goggles when the Magic... Orlando Magic went to the playoffs. Ah, for Horace Uh, Grant. Yep. And then um, it also, someone said, and I don't remember this, that at Halloween time, at least once, it was dressed up like a ghost. Yes. Yes, that that is a thing that happened. I I feel like once or twice it was used to promote films that were coming out, too, that, you know, I... Off the top of my head, I'm not remembering specifically which ones, but there were times where they dressed it up for specific films, film releases. Yeah. Now, typically it had the Disney MGM Studios logo on it with the lion. Mm -hmm. And then after, you know, after the MGM thing ended, uh, then it was repainted with whatever the current Hollywood Studios logo was. But and Todd, where where would it have been kind of in today's? 
Yeah, it's it's pretty much um, where the Slinky Dog uh, coaster comes uh, oh, comes out weird. of the building. That right where that kind of turns, and and my son was telling me, I was telling him what we were talking about today, and he said that the inside the ride, inside the attraction, yes, um, there's something, there's a drawing on Andy's wall, and it has the Earful Tower on it to commemorate where it was. So I huh. have to go check that out. So, so uh, some other information too, just uh, on the bun- the bungalows is essentially on the spot where you enter Toy Story Land. Now that's uh, the bungalows extend uh, just in that general area when you come in. Around the corner. Uh, oh, and the and the Airful Tower was removed on April 29th, two thousand sixteen. There we go. Such a sad uh-huh. day. Did it go anywhere? It Has it? Preserved. It wasn't been repurposed. No, no, it went, went to the went to the went to the, the boneyard for a minute, and then they. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, they didn't. They didn't reuse it anywhere. You know, they put up a new water tower over at Disney Springs, but they didn't reuse that one. It was a different design. So, yeah. So. Slanor Water Tower. Take a look off to your right. You'll see John has steered us into a branch of our greens department. Get it? Branch? Yeah, right. This is where we store trees, plants, shrubs, and flowers until they're needed on the set. So you've you've made a turn to go past uh, the, to go up to the the bungalows, and on your right hand side is the green department. And um, yeah, this was topiaries, uh, trays of different bushes roses growing up trellises um anything that they need to bring in um for background or any type of plant small trees anything like that and they were always they always had some sort of uh disney topiary in there and cut and trimmed and ready to go but, they did uh, they did yeah. they, would, they would have a, like a dozen or so topiaries in in different stages of growth i think they said yep. it would at when they did them for real or do them for real it takes like 10 years to grow at a full topiary, so they had a few out there. Uh, and they also had, like, a big prop flower stem from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Oh, yeah, Off to one right. side, because, you know, I guess it's a plant, so it's close enough. <laughs> so this is on your right, and the bungalows are on the left as you're as you're going through. Well, what we'll have to do is take one of these old satellites and kind of map it out for everybody. Yeah, so, so you're kind of... the steps along. You're kind of splitting the needle there, so they... You're actually you're you're right. The bungalows are to your left, and then they just kind yep. of built a little channel because you're gonna go inside of a building. Whoa! And you know what's right there now? That's still the coaster. <laughs> it's still the big loop. The not the loop. The uh, the final turn. Oh, okay. So so uh, so next up on the tour is the costuming department. Right now we're gonna pull inside for a moment, take a look at one of our more glamorous areas. This is the world of creative costuming here. Over 180 artists design and manufacture the costumes we use for motion picture, television, and live entertainment. Which actually did hold Disney's creative costuming. Um, it was a 32,000 square foot facility that uh, at different points had up to 180 workers in it. Uh, now the guides would claim that they use more than uh, 175,000 yards of fabric per year to, to produce more than 12,000 garments. Um, and in 1994, it was said that they were producing 24,000 costumes a year for Disney shows, cast members, and audio animatronic figures. And I thought mm-hmm. that was interesting because uh, this wasn't built specifically just for, um, you know, for movies production that was going to come in here. It was actually right. creating costumes for cast members. Uh, it, it, I mean, it was used productions. If you did a production here, you know, they could come in and, and design a costume for you and, and do that work. In fact, um, I found an auction uh, in the past for a Superboy costume that was made for when Superboy was filmed there. And it actually had an Epcot Center tag 
like from when they were building costumes for Epcot Center, like that was the tag that they used that was sewn in the back of Superman's cape or Superboy's cape <laughs> at the time. So, I mean, it, w- it was legitimately like a working costume department for, for films and TV. But, you know, the work for films and TV was, was so scattered. It was primarily used to build costumes for the parades and, uh, and entertainment department and then eventually cast members uh, and also autom- audio animatronic figures. So all the the uh, replacement costumes were, were done in Florida. So they, they weren't done in California and shipped over. They actually had copies of the patterns for all the different things. There's uh, There was an interview I found with a woman that was in charge of doing the Small World dolls. And uh, they had you know racks and racks and and drawers of like different buttons and shiny things that the that they would put on the costumes when they would do the refreshes so it was a very uh very busy place um yeah the i it was it's funny that when you go through there and in the later years you really wondered how much cost me it's almost like it became an extension of of uh cast member uh costumes <laughs> at some point you know it could have been i mean the first room you would see seamstresses and tailors and there was a bunch of sewing machines but then after that, there were multiple rooms, even back when it first started, that had racks and racks of different costumes that were in storage. So that right. c- could have been uh, what you're... And at first, when you would ride, all everything was on the left-hand side. But at some point, a couple of years later, they actually added... Because uh, it was enclosed on the two sides, they actually kind of opened up the space on the right-hand side with some additional uh, costuming facilities as well, which I thought was interesting. Uh, and one of the things that was cool is they had windows with uh, with notable costumes that they would change out from time to time. Take a look at the showcases as we go by. You'll see the costumes worn by Madonna and Warren Beatty and Dick Tracy. Julie Andrews, 25-year-old Jolly Holiday dress from Mary Poppins. Michael Jackson's spacesuit from Captain EO. And the costumes worn by the human co-stars of Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So in, in, early, uh, in the early, uh, late 80s, and early 90s, you would see costumes for like Bette Midler in Big Business, uh, Dick Tracy, Mary Poppins. The Mary Poppins one stayed there forever, her Jolly Holiday dress. Uh, Captain EO, they had Michael Jackson's outfit as well as uh, a Hooter uh, costume there. And then um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And then, like I said, as, as time would go on, they'd switch it out. So in 94, it was like costumes from the Mighty Ducks and the Golden Girls. And what's love got to do it? Got to do with it, which was a Tina Turner biopic, uh, Pretty Woman, Sister Act. So uh, even in later years, it would kind of change out from t- from time to time. What was one of the last things that was like remained at the end of the tour's life? That is true. Yeah, like that. That in the carpentry shop. Like I just remember, you used to used to see them all the way up until they finally killed the tour. Yeah, um, and those buildings actually managed to remain uh, until February of 2016. No so, kidding. Wow. Yeah. Um, it okay, was like... So uh, I'm, pour, I'm, I'm pouring one out for them right now. <laughs> we actually uh, ran through them for a Disney race uh, back in like 2014. Oh, really? uh, wine and nice. Dine. We ran through those. It was an odd loop. We I forget how we came in, but we that was part of the route was through those tunnels. So I mean, it's like weird. I was like on foot, you know, through the costuming, carpentry, and then we ran through Osborne lights because it was late November. So oh, cool. Very cool to see it in a different way and not in the tram. All right. So so then just past the costuming department was the lighting department. Of course, it does take just a little bit more than wardrobe to make a motion picture or a TV show. So right now we're going to take a look at some of our technical areas. 
The first one is our lighting department. And here we can generate about three and a half million watts of light. You know, these are the big Clegg lights and the kind of studio lights that you would expect to see, you know, filming Hollywood films. Uh, and they had racks, actually really nicely organized racks that you would go past that were all marked off uh, as to what was exactly there. And, you know, you could come in uh, and either rent those for uh, external shoots or you could rent them uh, for shoots uh, that you did at the studio. And then besides the studio lights, they actually had a room for a short time that was filled with different lighting fixtures that you could also use for shoots. So there were like different sconces and chandeliers that I guess you could come come and pick from for your production. Uh, and when the movie Dick Tracy came out, uh, I guess someone decided that was stupid. So they turned <laughs> it into uh, sort of like a fake makeup room uh, with a, a display of a lot of the uh, prosthetics that were used for the Dick Tracy film, since, you know, they had all the weird, you know, characters' faces, like... So, so how, uh, a couple, couple of things here, is that, um, you know, what's interesting is I, I rode the attraction in April, I'm, I'm sorry, in August 1989, and by then everything was filled in, but for people on opening day, when you went, it was filled with stuff. So how much of this was actually being, you know, how much had to come up to speed beforehand, or did they just kind of fill everything and get these people in you know all right may 1st 1989 you're now working at this facility right you know to to get it so um, it's curious I'm, I'm curious to know when this stuff actually started well the thing to remember is this the working part of the studio was actually open in 88 so they would have had you know the stuff like the lights and all that stuff would have been there so todd if you remember when we had uh chris debeck on he told us that there was yes. actually like a Panavision camera rental, like all, all that stuff was set up because you couldn't own a Panavision camera. Panavision could only rent them out to you. So they actually had an office there uh, that, that they would rent that stuff out. So it was it was oh. fully functional by time, you know, opening day had hit. Now, there, there were certain things that seemed less full, like um, when we talk about the I'll, I'll just run through the here so I can talk about the scenic shop and some of the changes that we saw over time there. Next, after the makeup room, there was a small props department. So it was racks and shelves with like little things like televisions and radios and ashtrays and just, you know, small miscellaneous items you'd have. In your the big, big props were outside. It's funny. It's, you met, and, and Birnbaum says Disney's camera equipment is so advanced that many visiting network television crews often borrow it when covering spatial launches at the Candy Space Center. Because who wants to drag stuff to Florida? Exactly. That's yeah. already here. Let's let's just use it. Exactly. It's a heck, heck of a lot easier. Another, I mean, so. and, and even I, I assume up to that point, it's like camera rental was something that you could do, you know, in Miami, certainly. But again, that's mm. a really long haul up to KSC. So having that kind of facility available in Orlando was was probably something new. Uh, next up would be the small props department. So this was racks and shells with things like televisions and radios and ashtrays and, you know, just little items that you could put on desks and things to dress up a set. All the big prop pieces were out in the back warehouse that we talked about at first, but this had the small stuff. Uh, and then you get to the camera department where the rental stuff was, and there was a little, this one little room that had, I think, equipment mostly just to, like, test and maintain the cameras that they were renting. It was typically I'd never saw anybody in there, but I actually found some videos of people working in there. And they, they had some places where it looked like you might be able to load film and then just some racks of equipment with TVs and test bars and things on it. Um, uh, but the next big piece that you would see was the scenic shop. Last in our tunnel is our scenic shop. This is where carpenters begin to build the sets that are later finished on the sound stages. You asked about 
what were the some of the changes like on the opening day that that was the one place on opening day it literally just was like a big workshop with nothing in it except for <laughs> machine you know machines drills and saws and things to yeah. build stuff i mean there was a little bit of work being done but it didn't really you know, there, there were people in it. And unfortunately, I always tended to go on the weekends. So these folks were always off when I tended to go. Because um, <laughs> unless you went Monday through Friday, it's like you rarely get to, would get to see people working in these places. Same thing with the animation studio. I'd go on a Sunday and there'd be like, you know, one person in there maybe drawing. But the rest <laughs> of it was all empty. It's He had to come in because he didn't get his work done during the week. Yeah. Um, but... As time went on um, and productions kind of ramped up, it's like when Wheel of Fortune came in and when Lose or Draw, um, you could see stuff being built uh, from time to time. And they would kind of put it up against the wall on one side. And then as, as the years rolled by into the 04s and 05s and 08s, they really started to dress out that area with just a lot of prop stuff to make it look. <laughs> it looked more like a storage facility as time went on and less like a place where, <laughs> where stuff was actually made. There was probably a sweet spot about 96, 97 when there was a lot of work going on in there. But as, as years went on, it, it, it just sort of became like faked to look like there was work happening there. More so yeah. I remember work. just seeing signs and different things that need to be fixed around the park. <laughs> so, yeah. And there are like, I think there's uh, besides that woodworking shop, there is a woodworking shop that's still active in, in uh, behind Epcot in the Japan Pavilion, uh, oh. where Meet the World was supposed to be. That's still a woodworking shop. So, um, so they they do a lot of they do a lot of stuff, and then Central Shops yeah. might have one too. I don't know. So it's like I guess they stay busy. Uh, all right. So a little bit later on, something got added to the right hand side. Which, yes. which I know is one of your favorite things because you brought it up a couple of weeks ago to me. I did, and it's interesting because I did a little research on this, and it actually times well with the start of Delta Dreamflight, which opened about two months after the opening of Disney MGM Studios. So added to the right-hand side was actually uh, a half of a L-1011 TriStar, an airplane, uh, and they could utilize it for shooting the interior of an airplane for films and television what's really interesting thing about this is there's a whole press kit that came out with uh delta dream flight in it there's there's three pages of interesting information about this and how they set this up for filming first of all it was original l1011 tristar not only an original but it was the very first one that was built by lockheed martin so huh. it's kind of got a piece of history um they chopped it up Basically, they took the first um, 65 or so feet of it, cut the the cockpit off and made it removable so you can, uh, it's on dollies and you can remove the cockpit. And then they split the fuselage down the center so they could open it up for a left and a right side. Uh, what's really neat about it is that the video monitors in days of old, when, when you're lucky enough to be on an airplane that had a television... Uh, they would pop down from the ceiling or they would be mounted just from the ceiling. So what they did is they made them be able to be used or they could be used as monitors for shooting filming. So ah. they could be looking in one direction and the director could be looking up at that and seeing what's going on. But it had the, the full cockpit, which was about 13 feet. Um, and they could use it as a whole. They could use it as a half. That way you could get those odd shots of like, you know, a camera looking straight across an aisle of, 
of three or four or something like that. So um, now what's interesting is you can still visit this. It's actually uh, over in Atlanta at the Delta Flight Museum. Um, since And uh, another piece of history, there's much of the filming for Passenger 57 was taken aboard that aircraft as well. And and so. the movie Quick Change. <laughs> Quick Quick Change is one of the one of my all-time favorite movies. Bill Murray robs a bank. Jason Robards is the investigating uh, officer. Uh, Randy uh, Quaid is in it. It is a terrific film. If you do nothing else, you should go and watch Quick Change this week. All right, there, there we go. go. Um, and I guess it was Passenger also- 57 and yeah. then make a trip to Atlanta and you'll be all set. Now, I guess I, I, I actually went to Atlanta and I went to that museum, so I must have been on it and I didn't even know it. So I got to go. You didn't even know, yeah. I got to go back and check my pictures now. Um, now, before it was on the side, what, like I used to go by there and I'm like, well, how do they shoot anything like through this glass with a the tram there? <laughs> Right. It actually, pull it, out. it actually got moved there afterwards. For a yep. little while, it was actually down on one of the sound stages uh, while they were shooting. So if you went through the sound stage tour, you could actually see it set up uh, on one yep. of the sound stages for this. I, I, and I guess they used it for some of the like um, like the warning films. You know, when you would get on the plane and they would do the like the exits are behind you. It's like that was also filled in there too. Uh, the whole thing was on casters, so all three parts, the cockpit could be pushed away. And then the whole thing could be split down the center with casters on so they could, you know, roll it anywhere they wanted. But um, there's some interesting, there's some great pictures of it uh, on Delta Museum's uh, website. So we'll include that in the show notes and uh, you can take a look at it. Awesome. That's so cool. All right. So now you're coming out of the building and for a little while there was nothing there. But in 1990, they dressed up the area for an exterior uh, shot of the Sterling Laboratories for Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Uh, and this was a time when there was a ton of, like, Honey, I Blew Up the Kid stuff there. And they basically built a little guard shack uh, and could park a car out there. And, and they actually used that for real in, uh, in Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. So there was a little something actually shot there uh, right outside of the scenic shop. So that was pretty cool. And then a little later on, when they were working on Thunder in Paradise, uh, a little bit forward and to the left of the scenic shop, they actually built a water tank. Uh, Now, you couldn't actually see the water tank because it was underneath a big green tarp. But uh, there were some underwater scenes that they needed to to film for that show where, you know, Hulk Hogan would go down and try to defuse a bomb that was underwater or something. (laughs) and, and, uh, And they shot it there. Now, you're probably thinking, well, don't they have a big water tank? That they like would dump the water on you over. <laughs> that one was that water tank is only about three or four feet deep, <laughs> so this was more like ten or eleven feet deep. And uh, they even did stuff like they would have scuba lessons that they would teach uh, in that water tank and stuff. So I thought that was that was pretty interesting. Past there, we're gonna make a little bit of a right hand turn and a jog. And we're going to roll ourselves onto Residential Street. Woohoo! Oh, yeah. Now, this part of our back lot is known as Residential Street. We do have some beautiful homes here. In fact, the first one coming up on your right, that one's for sale. This was an exciting portion of it, yeah. This was a big deal because after looking at all this, there was finally something on the, on the ride that you would recognize. <laughs> yeah. Like, almost everybody was like, I know that. I know that one. Right, right. And I think this was this is again really to compete with what you know Universal Studios in in, uh, in Hollywood had, where they actually did have you know the back lot set and residents and 
city streets that had been there for years and you would you know recognize back to the future and oh my gosh yeah i mean that i mean you go and that that poor lot is burned down what three times in its history or something i think so it's all wood facades why they have the water tower there todd exactly (laughs) they didn't put it out well the first (laughs) so but yeah how lead us down this residential street quite a number of homes that uh, you may or may not recognize yeah so it's a it's a little strip it's not super long but they have a lot packed into it um so the first thing that you come up to uh, on the right-hand side of the tram is a two-story prairie-style house. And uh, the first thing that you notice is that the side facing the trams you pull on is left unbuilt. So you can see right into it, and there's an open house sign, because the house is for sale, and it sets up a joke for the guy that's telling you about all the houses are facades, because the house is <laughs> open, and you can see right through it. Very... And I know everyone would love to live, to live and work at Disney World, but... Well, before you decide to move into this house, you may want to take a good look through it. It does give a whole new meaning to that sign, open house there. These are all just empty shelves or facades. We use them for exterior shots only. They say there's seven houses on here, and they're supposedly each built in a different architectural style, so that way you could kind of represent, you know, different parts of the United States uh, all in one place here at Disney. Or shoot the whole street and just be like, this was a very confusing yeah. street. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the architects just didn't know it. I mean, it could, it could work as a street. Uh, yeah. So, so immediately on the and left... And it was uh, eight, 800 feet long, by the way. Oh, eight, oh okay. But I don't know. That doesn't sound... Is that as long? I need something to compare that to. Is that How does that compare to a football field? It's a uh, 0.15 tenths of a mile or about twice... A little short of twice the length of a football field. All right. Thank you. Now I can... If you were driving on the road from the full curve to the end. Gotcha. So. Now I can visualize that. So uh, immediately on the left was a lo- very large white international style house that the guides would some sometimes call Miami style. And I think this is one of the houses that almost nobody noticed for years <laughs> and years and almost no one ever took pictures of it or video of it uh, because the guides would almost immediately draw your attention to the next house on the right that was much, much more memorable. But when they finally did start talking about this White House, they would point out that the there was a 1963 Cadillac parked in the carport that was used in the movie Tin Man, which seven or eight people may have seen in the 1980s. <laughs> it was not a... Uh, and you may be asking, why did they so quickly point out the house that was on the right-hand side? And that's because it was number 242, Vern's House and Ernest Saves Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now... Now, that wasn't really what the big... The big deal was because Herbie the Love Bug was in the driveway. And he was causing, right. causing a commotion. At least for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about that. Because I've got three different clips here up on the screen and, and of this exact moment. And uh, Herbie... There's, there's three different states of Herbie that I see. Yeah. So opening day, uh, you could see there were kind of like these tracks, you know, holes in the ground. Opening day, Herbie would like pop a wheelie. There'd be smoke economist smoke coming out of his tires. He would move forward. His hood was open and closed. His lights would flash. Water would squirt out of the windshield wipers, and then his doors on the side would open and close. And then, as time went on, things started to change a little rather, bit. rather quickly because I was there in August, and my footage hasn't just squealing and moving forward and then just moving back. No hood opening. I don't, I don't recall if the lights are going on and off. I'll have to watch it here. I see a lot of a lot of things like from in June, I found a video where the cars and the tires, the car tires would smoke, the car would move forward. It did not pop a wheelie. 
the hood would open and close and it would squirt water. And then in July, the doors would open and close and it would squirt water from the hood, but it wouldn't move. And then you have a different scenario in August. (laughs) Then I found some video from 1990 where it was fully functional again. But then in 1990, the car was actually damaged beyond repair due to an electrical fire that actually consumed the entire thing in flames. (laughs) And that's why your footage from October first, nineteen ninety one. There's a, there's a, there's a uh, pickup truck parked in the driveway. <laughs> some maintenance sitting on a black spot there. <laughs> well, what's funny is that they didn't even bother to cover up the tracks. No, know, they, they didn't. didn't they didn't. So, and now in at some point in nineteen ninety, after the, this car's damage with the electrifier, they actually brought out the Herbie that was used in the parades in the nineteen seventies and parked oh, wow. that drive and you can tell that one because it has like eyeballs instead of lights with like mm. eyelashes and it has a black uh open top completely different car that lasted for a short period of time and then by 1991 herbie was to- totally gone but okay so but i will go back it actually was Vern's house from from Ernest saves christmas and and a lot of times they would talk about how they could take a July day and they could turn it into Christmas, you know, in, in a winter with ice and snow. And that's exactly what they're talking about is, is when they did the shoot for that movie uh, here. So I, I recently just saw it. Um, I didn't see the house part of it or very much of it. Do you, do you recall how it got used in that film? I recall at one point he's trying to drag a tree into the house and causes all sorts of zaniness and, uh, you know, mishap. You don't ever see Vern though. You know, you're like the camera is Vern, right? You guys right. Are, so you don't. He's just. It's like Ernest talking to the camera and that whole thing. But I mean, I'm sure you're going to mention this. That a lot of that movie was filmed there, like on property. And you see sometimes when because he was a cab driver, you see the old brown signs in the background. This is before they went to that purple and blue or whatever it is now scheme. So you see like. He's just doing laps on the property while they're filming, but it's like, oh wait, what sign was that? I don't know if I, you can actually make them out or not, but yeah, they they did legitimately film that movie in Orlando. So, so is it safe to was... say Vern's facade was the only facade possibly used for actual filming? No, no, you could not say that. Okay, and uh, and because yeah, actually in in my footage they were actually filming something. Uh, it looks like a television commercial. It looks like a realtor. Um, in front of the house next to Vern. So and that didn't make you believe that the magic of movies was happening in front of you, Todd? <laughs> wasn't the magic of movies, the magic of a 40-second commercial that was going a on A working local studio. <laughs> they didn't promise you how big. It wasn't Die Hard 3 or anything, you know. <laughs> but that was was the area that sometimes, I swear, they would have fake stuff set up to make it look well, like they were the, doing it, something. But ex- Exactly. And it, I, the, what really always used to get my goat was, you know, when you would go to the Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular and fake cameras and fake cut 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 yep. yeah exactly <laughs> oh, we're not doing anything we're not doing all right so so next next to Vern's house on the right hand side was a very nice mid-century modern ranch that the guides would never speak about like that's <laughs> the one where the the realtor was filming Pro- yeah, the probably it was, was beautiful filming. beautiful design i'd like to actually see more pictures of it because it's quite nice uh, because across the street coming up on your left that's a house many of you may recognize it's the home to B. Arthur, Betty White, Rue McClanahan, and Estelle Getty. Those are our Emmy award-winning Golden Girls. On the exteriors of the house are shot right here in our back lot, and then edited together with interior footage. That is shot on a soundstage in Burbank, California. The end result is what you see every Saturday night on NBC television. 
the money shot that everybody was coming mm-hmm. for. It was the reproduction of the house used in the Golden Girls. I love that right there, the reproduction of the house used. <laughs> right, because in the so Golden Girls premiered before Disney MGM opened, and they they for the exterior shots for the first couple of seasons, they used a house in Brentwood in California. And then Golden Girls was so popular and they're putting together this backlot tour. So they decided to reproduce the house, which they called Hawaiian style, which I'm not sure why, but they, they reproduced that house uh, in Orlando. And then for some of the later seasons of the show, they actually would use the exterior shot, you know, probably mm-hmm. in, in, an, in an hour or two <laughs> all season long for uh, for the house there. And then in one the, of the, the MGM specials, don't the a couple of the Golden Girls pop out of the facade there on the tour? They do. John Forthlight says something, and he's walking down, and he says, like, and you never know who could come out. And then, yeah, I think Rue McClanahan and I think Betty White come out and wave. Everybody would always stop and turn and film the Golden Girls. So you'll, you'll find hundreds of hours of footage of the Golden Girls' house and none of the mid-century modern across the street from it. Um but yeah, it was, it was cool because Golden Girls was a hugely popular show. With the, still is a hugely popular show probably with all yeah. of our listeners. So that was that was kind of cool. Um, so back on the right-hand side, there's another brown house, which most people probably don't pay any attention to. Uh, and that JT was used in the TV movie Splash 2. Hmm. I haven't seen Splash 1, so... <laughs> <laughs> well it's a you know if you see it first you can do machete order you can watch splash two and then go back to the prequel and watch <laughs> splash one to find out how they got there and then is this where we got the splash fountain that was always sitting around somewhere on the, the studio mgm studio lot there it was uh well that was from the original splash okay yeah uh and that was over by the loony bin where you would get off by the eating area there where you could take a break between yes and that 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 has a an interesting history that we will get into when we do an episode about that area and then after the splash house the guide would draw your attention back over to the left hand side where there was a two-story blue house and they would always use this house to talk about set dressing once a house has been chosen for a shoot production designers to come in to give it a little bit more of a lived-in look you can see they've been hard at work on this blue house on your left in they totally cleaned up the house and got rid of all that stuff because it was used as Alice's house on the Disney Channel show Adventures in Wonderland. Hmm. Uh, which, I don't know if you saw that or not, but Adventures in Wonderland managed to kind of ingrain itself uh, at different places of the Disney parks, because there was actually uh, a display at the end of Spaceship Earth in the Global Village that used characters from Adventure in, in Wonderland as well. So, um, but that was on for five seasons, so that that show was, you know, somewhat successful. And then past that on the right-hand side is an area that changed a lot over the first couple of years. It started out as an empty lot that they'd have a couple of cars in. And then within six months, they built a playground there. And I don't know if they did that for show or if they just 
decided, hey, let's throw something on there to be cheap. Um, but then on January 24th of 1992, during the show's fourth season, Richard Mulligan and Bear, who was the dog who played Dreyfus on the television show Empty Nest, came to the Disney MGM Studios for a ribbon-cutting ceremony because they made a reproduction of the house that was used in the opening shots of Empty Nest in that hmm. location. Um, that house was also in Brentwood <laughs> in California. <laughs> and they used uh, they used the real one for the first couple of seasons and then switched to uh, the Disney MGM version later on. Uh, but So they did a big ribbon-cutting ceremony, and then they had a parade, and they had a handprint and a paw print ceremony in front of the Grauman's Chinese Theater for Richard Mulligan and Bear. Uh, and uh, so then suddenly the, uh, the Empty Nest House was there as well. So they had two somewhat recognizable houses, because uh, Empty Nest was a, was a popular spinoff of the Golden Girls. Um, then it also ran for five or six seasons, I think. Um, so then as you would come across the turn, there were a couple of different things that ended up there over the years. Uh, at, at first there was really nothing. And then in the spring of 1991, uh, the Bulldog Cafe and a sign for the Bulldog Cafe and the GB plane from the Rocketeer was added as you kind oh, of yeah. made the transition yeah. from residential street to New York street in anticipation okay. of the movie opening that summer. And that whole right-hand side there was a weird field, a uh, uh, world area where they would put a lot of different things. I remember going through and seeing some different production there. The one that you caught on uh, video was uh, filming for That's My Dog, which was a television show, I believe, on the Disney <laughs> Channel. That's, that's um, where the dog got the blog. That came later. No, on no. The channel. Dog with the blog. That's right. That's right. That's My Dog was a, uh, a t- television show where you would bring your dog and, and try to do agility uh, so if you look carefully on your on your footage, how um, you'll notice that there's you know cones and different things set set out, and that's that's what that was. Oh, fantastic! See, I don't yep. even I don't even I didn't get to see my footage, so that's I'm glad you, you knew that. Um, later on, they put George of the Jungle's treehouse there, not in a tree, and they had a Jungle Cruise elephant, uh, who I believe was Static, filling in for Shep, the elephant. So that. That area would kind of change out on the tour over the years. And then the last structure on the left side was the infamous small town church that if if you looked at it from the other side, it looked like a big city cathedral. I never got it. <laughs> I, Did you ever get it? The thing is, I you get so turned around. I thought about it, too, because originally I'm like, what are they talking about? Yeah. So going back and studying, it, it does. the So the face... And I guess this is how well it disguises it. So the face that points towards New York Street mm-hmm. is the big cathedral. And it actually does. Okay. If you look back, it looks like it's so different. Like you mm-hmm. don't really have a connection between that and the other. So I don't even think it occurs to you as you're riding the tram yeah. that like that's the same building. I remember the first time we were on the attraction, my dad says, oh, that was really good. Did anybody see the church? Because I didn't get it. <laughs> that's, that's what he said. It kind of. <laughs> I mean, it, part of it kind of looked like a house, yeah. but it was really, you know, that's the thing. It was a small town, you know, wood clabbered side church. And then you get about halfway sure. and then all of a sudden there's kind of like the big, I don't know, rosette. I'm not sure what the technical term is for that Gothic style, like the mm. big round circle holes cut in the wall. Like you have that. And then by the time you get around to the front, it's like super Gothic. So right. yeah, you, it was hard to notice. 
and and this was a time too where people weren't on New York Street. We'll talk about that in yeah. a little bit. But you 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 were not on New York Street, and um, yeah, it was it was different. But uh, so we're gonna make the right here, right? We're yeah, we are. We're gonna make a right. Turn on your blinker. All right, so we're gonna make a right, and we're gonna head into the Boneyard. The Boneyard, and then there was also. How you you captured this on the ninety one before we get to the boneyard on the left? Do you remember what Billy Crystal film was big in the late nineties and early nineties that uh, came out? Does anybody remember? City Slickers. City Slickers. That's right. Do you remember what he made in the movie? I really only watched the second one. Never saw the first. Oh, one. <laughs> I made a cow. Right. So they had Norman the cow from City Slickers on the left hand side that you would see, and he had his own little grazing area and little shelter and you would see norman the cow from city like slickers. the real cow it was the actual cow Are you sure it wasn't slickers? mini yeah. moo no because <laughs> mini moo mini moo doesn't have horns so oh, okay yeah there we go it was oh. definitely a bull definitely a bull so yeah that was uh something that was added uh uh at some point well early early on this it's was 91 ripped from the headlines was dizzy mgm they were so current whatever was whatever was hot you want some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Kids, we'll throw some Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in there. As we round the corner, we're going to pull into our boneyard. And no, this is not where Pluto buries his bones. It's where we store all kinds of large crops like cars, trains, planes, boats, even an occasional spaceship parks itself here. This is another one of those things, like it changed so rapidly. My, my, oh, constantly. My memories of the first year is that there was hardly anything there at all. Like the Dumbo Circus wagon, that wasn't even there. I I have I have the August footage oh, here, okay. and um, let me let me pull this up, and I can tell you the big thing was the pod from Flight of the Navigator, yeah, okay. uh, and the re- the return of the Jedi skiff, yeah, the skiff yeah. from the skiff yeah. scene where, um, and then I think bef- right before that there was a random boat that looked like Gilligan's Island, but I'm sure it wasn't. Hey, you see that blue and white yacht back there? That's uh, just a boat. That's nothing. It wasn't even the SS Minnow. I'd like to clear up that misconception right now. Um, and that, my dad shut off the camera at that point because <laughs> the only thing that you saw was the back of the homes um, from from Residential Street, which were just all, you know, aging wood at that point. Yeah. They're, um, they're, oh, and I do, uh, the, the fourth item is a snow speeder from, from um, Empire Strikes Back yeah. that they somehow dragged yeah. there's a shot from i think 1989 of the back lot and when you get down to the boats it's literally the only thing on the whole catastrophe canyon side is like three boats that gilligan's island looking <laughs> one and then yeah. this kind of big red thing and then another one that looks like a tugboat and that was literally all that was out there <laughs> so yeah they wound up um they added some helicopters later on i think they moved the dick tracy stuff roger rabbit um things were put out there um, I know you've got the the back half of the airplane from the MGM um, from the great movie ride was was dumped. That out eventually, there. No, got, no, that, yeah, that and that eventually went to Jungle Cruise. Right, the way right? that went, that was out there for a while. They had like six versions, and sometimes six, and then sometimes three versions of the car that Roger Rabbit steals from Who Framed Roger Rabbit as it goes in different right. stages of like getting destroyed. They the also, trolley. Yeah, they had the trolley from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. They had um, the front of the Blue Thunder. Hel- they actually, they, they had like, it started out as more of the Blue Thunder helicopter. And then eventually over the years, like parts of it started disappearing for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, this was a weird one. They had dragon boats from Surprise in the Skies out there at one point from the Epcot show. And there's also these odd things. I'm sending you guys a picture of these gears 
which I have no idea what these were from. Uh, they, they almost look like a prop. Do you know what that's from? The gears were from the bridge mechanism at the conclusion of Dick Tracy. Ah, uh, yes. Trudehard is tied up in there. They always, uh, okay. they always like, oh, these are the gears from Dick Tracy. And I was like, what in the hell are they talking about? I finally <laughs> had to go back and skim through the movie today to try to figure out where it was. I'm like, oh, there they were. And then we, we get to an anomaly that we only figured out today what this weird thing was. So, how tell a little bit about what this is. And you sent us on a wild oh, goose chase, oh. if you will. <laughs> I did. That's it. Uh, see That's what it. I did? Turn your mic off. <laughs> <laughs> Some of our listeners will appreciate. But, uh, yeah, this was weird. So, Brian had this in his photos. And then we got some video that also had this in it. It was this weird mother goose house thing and i i couldn't identify it i mean i'd been on that more than a handful of times and i watched i consumed my fair share of media in the 90s so i thought i would but i could not recognize this thing to save my life and it's so distinct i was like well this had to be from something and todd you, yeah you wouldn't just build this and put put it out there yeah but Todd actually found it. Well, which but was it's amazing. It started with JT though. JT by misidentifying Shelley Duvall as Shelley Long, <laughs> correct, yeah, sent, us, sent us down the path that ultimately led us to the correct answer. Exactly. What had happened before, how, is I was doing searches on houses that look like Mother Goose, and I kept going to these sites that wanted to install software so I could see the same photo, exactly mm. what we we're looking for. So. I was, you know, we love our listeners, but I'm not going to put any of our data in jeopardy anymore. So, right. So, <laughs> so, so when the Shelley Duvall thing came up, I started to go down that rabbit hole, found it called Mother Goose Rock and Rhyme uh, from 1990. And uh, well, how we confirmed it very quickly. That was indeed the house from there. But how you did a little more digging on what this was and stellar lineup. And it actually has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 73, which is pretty high for something that is pretty corny so this show is astounding uh <laughs> I, I it's on youtube so after you watch brian's movie after you watch uh what's the one we got passenger 57 <laughs> no quick the other change. one that brian quick loved. after you watch quick change go f- look up this one on, on youtube uh it is uh, a i'll try to describe it the best <laughs> I can. so so jt remembers watching this on the disney channel apparently it played a lot on the disney channel it is one of those epitomes of a 1990s super weird thing it's it was directed by the guy who directed tom petty's don't come around here no more video the one that was like alice in wonderlandy so if you use that as kind of like a touch point, you can imagine where... Lots, lots of fisheye lens and... Yeah. Yeah. It's a little Willow, Willy Wonka. It is. <laughs> you know? It's very you know? Willy Wonka. And it has... The second one, not the first one. Yes. And it has a redonkulously all-star lineup of actors and musicians involved with it. So what this is, is retellings and songs about Mother Goose stories, but it's done from an edgy 90s perspective and which i think shelly duvall had also done some some stuff for hbo at some point in in the kids genre so it's like she was pretty well known at that point anyways here's some of the people that appear on it so so shelly duvall as we talked about gene stapleton who is uh edith bunker from from all in the family, in the family yeah, pl- yeah. plays mother goose 
uh, Dan Gilroy is kind of this protagonist who is, uh, he was the lead singer of the song, uh, sorry, the lead singer of the band The Breakfast Club, which had a couple of hits in the 1980s. Yes. Um, it also has Cindy Lauper. There we go. Now your name is some Deb- normal people. Debbie, ha- <laughs> Debbie Harry. Howie Mandel. Bobby ha- Brown. Bobby Brown. Harry, Little Richard. Paul Simon. Yeah. The Stray Cats. Simon, Simon and Garfunkel. Like yeah. both Simon and Garfunkel when so, they're not talking to so each other. Paul, Howie Mandel as Humpty Dumpty and, and Woody Harrelson well, as a lamb. I, I mean, does that it, not? <laughs> it's worth noting that Paul Simon, uh, Shelley Duvall was his girlfriend for like three years in the late seventies. So, and she was, she was the wife in the shining. I mean, that's yes. <laughs> the other one that I always remember. Over. Um, We've got ZZ top as three men in a tub and, uh, Pia Zadora as little miss muffin. I mean, this is just, Pia Zadora. Yeah. Um, I mean, Gary Shandling, like <laughs> it is the most <laughs> random collection, but, Oh, and the thing that I saw, was the Del Rubio triplets were, <laughs> were playing. Which, oh, there's a Golden Girls reference for you. Yeah, so they were on the Golden Girls. This is this is a strange... I, I don't want to dive too far into the Del Rubio trip, but apparently this was a group of people, uh, three three sisters who sang with like Xavier Cougett and and bands in the, in the 1940s and the 1950s, completely kind of fell off the face of the earth. And then in the 1980s, they would play house parties uh, of contemporary songs, like whatever was on the radio then. And they were discovered by some Hollywood, rediscovered by some Hollywood producer who would basically hire them to play all of the big Hollywood parties because it was kitschy and funny and kind of ironic at the same time. And they ended up back on television again. They were in the Pee Wee Herman Christmas special. They were in a ton of TV shows after that. Yeah, they were uh, all in the family and... um... Uh, what's the one with it? Uh, uh, Bundy uh, married with oh, children. Married with children. On that. Oh my gosh, they were everywhere. I mean, if you look them up, and they were they were in their what would you say they were in the eighties? They were probably in their uh, early sixties or mid fifties somewhere. Yeah, because yeah. sixties for they, sure. They died in the nineties and the two thousands. So they did okay. Yeah. yeah. And what was funny is they would always wear these like really tight outfits that would expose their legs. And then the other interesting thing is there's a heavy metal band in it. Uh, and the members are other people in the Breakfast Club, including Stephen Bray, who was the keyboardist who produced a lot of Madonna songs. But two names that you might know is Randy Jackson, who's a bass player, who later, um, he was a studio musician who later went on uh, to American do stuff Idol, with Journey right? after. But he was right. He was on American Idol for years. And then Dweezil Zappa, Frank Zappa's son was also uh, in the in that band, along with uh, Warren D. Martini, who was the guitarist of Rat. So they had a, a lot of the like big hitters in there. Okay, so despite its maybe I don't know if it's despite of its weirdness or because of its weirdness, the show actually won a Peabody Award <laughs> for the quality of the wow. entertainment in it. Naturally, um, it also <laughs> naturally. naturally. It also won uh, Emmy Awards. It won Emmy. Where do I have it? Oh, it won an Emmy Award for costuming for a woman named Patricia Field, who later went on to win another Emmy for Sex in the City and an Oscar for The Devil Wears Prada. So this is worth your, I don't know, skim through it, if, if nothing else. I think it's an hour and a half long. 
probably, but there's there's sure to be some little nuggets of entertainment in there. You know, our listeners were so interested in hearing about like the history of the Golden Girls house, and this is what we went into. Right? Yeah. <laughs> this is where our research led us. We, please forgive us, but these are the, these are the rabbit holes we go we down. We have a very um, clear picture on the site, which we'll link in the, the show notes here of the uh, what we're talking about, the structure. Yes. Yeah. Uh, a couple more uh, things that ended up on the on the uh, the boneyard. Uh, one was a cutaway of an airplane that was used in Operation Dumbo Drop, which is mm. another super forgettable movie from Disney. Was that like ninety three um, yep. or ninety four or something in that? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Ray, Ray Liotta. Ray Liotta was in. Yeah, that. Ray yeah. Liotta. Yeah. Post Goodfellas. Uh, um, let's see. So they had a, also had a lot of vehicles from Honey I Blew the Kid. They had the boat from the thousand or the hundred lives of Blackjack Savage. Mm. which no one ever Never saw heard of that in my life <laughs> it was <laughs> there was this big catamaran style boat out there and it was a show that disney produced that ran on nbc i think it shot 12 or 13 episodes and they maybe aired like five or six of them i mean it just did not do well at all but they had to mention this boat every time they came around the corner <laughs> because it was there and it was predominant um, they also had Bill Nye, the science guy's helicopter from the universe of energy at one point. No way. Uh, yeah. And a bunch of vehicles from Indiana Jones and the last crusade, including the tank yeah. and the motorcycle with the sidecar. So, yeah. Yeah. And you can see why this was a live spiel because they did really have to bring a lot of that stuff in there. They didn't know what to expect when it was truly, you know, operating. Um, it's funny though, as, as this really got smaller and smaller over the years you think they would have went with a recording <laughs> towards the end well actually they did by time oh, they did yeah, okay by time the end of it they did go with a recording and actually i watched it and it, it's actually took a lot of much like living with the land it took a lot of life out of mm. the uh the presentation when you dropped the live host part, part, sure, sure. an interesting observation too is it it seemed like there was a lot more rotation of the things that you saw up until they bought ABC, and you would think, oh, hey, we've just bought a major television studio that is producing things 365 days a year, that that would have increased the rotation of props and things as they wanted to promote things that were on ABC. But no, it's just like you just, there was suddenly a point where it all stopped, and you were seeing <laughs> props from 30 years ago that are still sitting there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are a couple of, every, you know, same way with your theory about how like stuff just is old. And then there are certain things that, you know, are classic, like seeing the skiff from, and the snow speeder from empire strikes back. And like, that's classic. Like yes, that. I can, right. That's just, I'll see that every time. It's like Same seeing the ruby like, slippers. But right. Bill Nye's helicopter, nobody even yeah, knew. Yeah, Bill Nye's are like the <laughs> gears from Dick Tracy. It's like, there's a point where nobody, nobody cares. We're going to turn the corner here, and um, according to Birnbaum, the, uh, we, the, the guide will explain how landscapes can be created by set designers to fill certain needs, and then asks, where in central Florida can you find an active oil field in the middle of a dry, rocky, barren desert prone to flash floods? They did. They actually so, said that almost every single time. Every time. <laughs> yeah. And we're, we're allowed to go in today as the big sign that says... No tours allowed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, a special yeah. exception we'll, we'll, just for you guys. Just for you guys. You believe it, right? Yeah. yeah. Again, some of the, the hokiness. What if there was an environment we needed for a film that you couldn't find in Central Florida? For example, an active oil field in the middle of a dry, rocky, barren desert canyon. 
You wouldn't find one of those anywhere near Orlando unless you came here to our back lot because we included one when we built the studios. So here's what I found fascinating. So one would expect that something the magnitude of Catastrophe Canyon would have been in planning for quite some time. I found mm. a, I found an article uh, where a project manager named Bill Dennis uh, in October 1987, he's talking to a newspaper and he's like, oh, hey, we just got approved to like build this attraction. <laughs> <laughs> so like... You got a year and a half. <laughs> yeah, so they're starting right then. And uh, yeah, so that's crazy. So it seems like it kind of came in fast and we, we have a little bit of a story about that. So... Before we get into the canyon, you pass by an airplane, and this is one of this. Yep. This is one of those things that vexed me for a while, and thank God that Todd has like a large background or a, a deep background in <laughs> knowing things about airplanes. So I'm like, why is that airplane? And, and Todd actually was able to identify not just the kind of airplane it was, no. but the actual plane and and where it came from and everything. Yep, we found actually down to the actual airplane. So initially when I saw it, I, I, I couldn't remember, you know, what specific type it was. And I thought it was a DC-3. It looks like a DC-3. But no, it is actually, uh, it was a, a Lockheed. You ready for this now? Yeah. C-60A-5-LO, also known as the Lodestar. That's, so, that's my new nickname. Is Lodestar. The Lodestar. Lodestar. Um. Now, what's really interesting is that I did a little bit of digging, and I was able to actually find the tail number. Uh, for those of you who don't know anything about an aviation or unsure, if you ever fly in an airplane, you see an N number on the back, right? There's an N and then usually numbers and letters. That is the registration uh, with the, with the uh, Federal Aviation Administration. So the, the civilian registration on this was N1000G. So I did some digging in some airplane uh, databases and found out. Uh, it was actually uh, built in 1943. It says here in the documentation it flew with the United States Army Air Force. So I'm not too sure if it was the Army or the Air Force or a combination. Uh, well, they, I can answer. They were, the, they were all at I once. can answer that question yeah. for you because my dad was in the Army Air Corps in the 19. Okay. In, during World War II, there was no separate Air Force. No, they were it was, part that's of the right. Army. It was a division of, yeah. the, of it was part of the Army. So yeah. there we go. So um, it had an additional certificate of airworthiness in 1955 and then in 1970. And in 1982, it was sold uh, to a private gentleman, Samuel Nappy, um, in Syracuse, New York. And uh, the Walt Disney Company purchased it just four, year late, four years later in August 1986 um, and then registered it. So they really didn't, um, you know, they, they picked this thing up, flew it down there or towed it down there. Um, and then it actually had, I don't, yeah, I don't know how they, I'm assuming it might've been, it might have been flight worthy at the time. So here's, um, here's what have. I was able to find. Cause I did a little additional digging too. Did you? So I found out that Samuel Nappy, he owned an, an oil exploration business that would search Alaska for oil. So my assumption hmm. is that he actually used it. Now I, I've actually reached out to him through his current holding company and because of the speed of this, it's like, he didn't get back to me. I don't know if he will ever get back to me. But I, I hope to find out from him what the story is. Because he actually turns out to be a fascinating guy. He's, he's turned into a philanthropist. He set, up a, he set up an event in California in the 90s with the Dalai Lama and a bunch of, bunch of other people. It is a super interesting guy. So uh, I hope he can answer the question for me. 
Um, there, that is really cool because the picture we have is it's, it's in Fort Lauderdale when it was right. The, the, one of the last photos was taken, so they must have flown it or again towed it over. Now I found um, I found something that looked like a change of registration on December twenty fourth, nineteen eighty eight, and I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't you know the thing is I'm not an expert at that, but it looked somehow they got it from Fort Lauderdale to Orlando. I, right, I right. can I don't know if it was flight worthy. It, you know, the photo from 86 looks like it's just hanging out, <laughs> like with weeds going around it. <laughs> yeah. And we talked about how when they flew the the mouse in, Walt's plane, of how they had to close down. Right. Uh, so, you know, World, it, World Drive, it yeah. would have had to have been a similar situation if yep. they did it that way. So and Now, here's another really interesting movie reference, because this is all movies here, right? So what was interesting is that when... Samuel Nappy owned it uh, on the engine cowlings was written Shangri-La. Yeah. And I initially went down and started doing research. And, you know, there's the film Rescue from Shangri-La, which is about a C-47 or DC-3 that goes down. And the uh, those on the plane are with natives uh, that have never seen technology and things before. And there's, there's a whole movie. I think it's Rescue from Shangri-La or something. Um, but what's really interesting is that Disney kept that name on the side on the engine cowlings and then added the Mojave Oil Company logo to, to the nose. Right. So we found found photos where it was kept in its original state, more or less, until 1991. And then in 1991, someone decided to tie the plane in more closely to Catastrophe Canyon. And that's when they modified the paint job, added the Mojave Oil Company logo to the nose on the two sides, along with... These little, you know how, and the fighter pilots, they would like shoot down airplanes and they put little stamps on the side with like little airplanes on yep. it. To, well, they did that except with like oil rigs. So there's like five oil rigs stamped <laughs> on the side, which I don't know what that means. Like if they've, that plane helped find five oil rigs or, but they added that to it and they actually added Mojave Oil Company, uh, Mojave Oil CO on the port side in a script typeface. Uh, much like the airlines would would do when those planes were decommissioned and turned into airliners at the time. But what's weird is on the starboard side, it just says Mojave Oil without... Mm. So I don't know if they ran out of room. The budget. It was a budget cut. The footage you have from 91 has has the logos on the on the nose, which is interesting. So, well, Bort, stay tuned on that. But, hey, another another movie to uh, to, to, to look up, right? Yeah. You know, we've, we've given you another one. Yep. And, and that plane was stayed in relatively good shape for a number of years. But uh, there's photos of May of 2010. And the landing gear and the wings and the tail were all cut off and removed and placed to the side. Anyways, but let's get in Catastrophe Canyon, because that's really let's get in there. where the juice We're getting is. special special access tonight. That's right. Now, normally, only production crews are allowed inside there, but they've taken the day off, gone to the Easter Parade over at the Magic Kingdom. So we've gotten special permission to come in here and take a look around. Uh, so, so I found out that a man named Richard Vaughn was the show designer and producer. He was also the art director for the entire backstage studio tour. And we actually spoke to someone who had a very large influence on on how the ride turned out or i should say this this part of the show turned out as well and we had him with us in florida so uh let's go over maybe a couple of specs on the attraction and then we'll talk about how it got to the way that it was supposedly uh when we when we roll into catastrophe Canyon, which it's built kind of like a semi-circle yeah a little crescent yeah a little crescent your your car's 
pull into and you know actually we're I guess we're at a point now where this hasn't existed for a couple of years so we should probably describe true. it. true uh, so you, you pull in on kind of this rickety wooden bridge into kind of a semicircle and looking up you see a, a lot of rock work it looks like you're out in the desert someplace um there's there's an oil rig that actually moves up and down like one of those pump things a small one uh there's some storage tanks uh, and there's a tanker truck kind of in the middle of it and uh they t- when you come in, the guy tells you that the props from the can- inside of the canyon are real, and they all came from an, ab- an abandoned oil well in Texas. And then uh, it starts raining, and they tell you about how there's like special nozzles that twirl the water, so it looks like it's raining. So the best the best thing how is on on mine. They're like, I don't know what's happening. Everybody, sit still. Just 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 be calm. We'll be out of here in a moment. So they really played it up in the early years. Well, the gag is you rolled onto like, a we... set in. Oh my gosh, they started yeah. it and we shouldn't have started it at this point. That's right, because you're not you're not really well, allowed. Hot set. Burnbaum writes that the that the crews are filming a movie in which a backstage tram gets stuck in the canyon during a flash flood, but the guide will tell you that it's safe to go in because they're not filming today. But of course you go in there and all hell breaks loose. So elaborate. So, so elaborate. Yes. Oh, no, no. It does look like it's raining over the entire canyon. It's just a wall of rain that ends about the uh, C1. No, not C1! Not C1! Oh, oh. Uh, just remain calm, everyone. Uh, guys, can you cut the C, please? There's a... Oh, they're just testing in effect. Nothing to worry about. Um, we'll get out of here. You're in there, and then uh, there's an earthquake, so you start shaking back and forth. And if and if you look in the canyon wall to your right, there's some like electrical boxes with wires, and all of a sudden you see sparks coming out of them, and sort of electricity traveling down the wires and then it comes around to the front and then these fires start little different parts so all of a sudden there's like different areas that are burning and uh i think a telephone pole or electrical pole falls over onto the truck and then the truck starts on fire and then there's all these things that are on fire and if that's not bad enough (laughs) suddenly the truck's air horn blows Like 70,000 gallons of water rush down the three sides of the canyon, putting the fire out, which is a plus, but it's also pushing the tanker truck, the tail end of it, out towards the audience to where you are. And you're like, oh my God, I'm going to get crushed by this tanker truck now. And if that's not bad enough, then all of a sudden water, (laughs) like more thousands of gallons of water come like falling over the front of the little precipice that you're sitting on. But it turns out it's all okay. And all the time, you're too, your, your tram is rocking. They pull it into a specific spot so that all cars can be hydraulically manipulated back and forth to simulate an, an earthquake. So they're adding adding to it. So, I mean... I remember people you know, the wincing with the heat of the explosion and then the, uh, um, you know, the, the water, everybody leaning in. Oh, my God, I'm going to get soaked wet. Yeah. So, I mean, and you did. You could get wet. Burn bomb suggests sitting on the right if you don't want to get wet. The left side gets more wet. <laughs> I think you got more wet from the leftover water on the seat. Yeah, <laughs> and they always said that uh, the, the the air cannons, you know, the water comes out, 
could shoot a uh, basketball over the top of the Empire State Building. I say we get one of those cannons and give that a shot. We've got to do that sometime. <laughs> That's a viral video if we can get it in a hoop, too. Retro <laughs> Magic 2021. <laughs> That's right. We're, we're doing Disney will give us clearance to... We're shooting this. it off of the top of the contemporary and seeing where we can <laughs> hit, a, hit, a, hit a hoop over at Fort Wilderness. <laughs> the way that the show ended up the way it was, the show was not what was originally planned. There's artwork, which, which we will link to in our show notes of Catastrophe Canyon, that shows a bridge, like a railroad trestle, with railroad like oil cars on it and with a bunch of fire and flames around that. And as it turns out, Bob Gurr, who was our guest at our retro magic event um he he owned a company called sequoia creative with a couple of other ex-imagineers and they were doing a bunch of different jobs for for different companies at that time um they were asked to bid on doing the show action equipment uh for that show for for the way catastrophe canyon was planned to have somebody make it because disney you know didn't have any of the manufacturing things on their own so the idea was that the flash it would start with the flash flood and the flash flood would cause the bridge to break, and then the oil tanker cars would get knocked into each other, and then that would set off a huge explosion. So, little little different sequence. They went to Bob and said, hey, how much is it going to cost to build all this? So they sat down and they figured out how much it was going to be. And the number was, like, way high compared to what they had budgeted for it originally. So Disney was kind of figuring out, what. well, okay, we don't know what we're going to do, scale it back, whatever. And Bob went to him and said, hey, what if you just told me what the budget was? And then I just kind of reverse engineered what we could do for that price instead. So someone said, okay, well, go ahead and try that. So he ended up changing the show in order to fit the budget. So his idea is get rid of the trains. Like kids don't care about trains, but kids love trucks. So it's like... He observed and fire. Yeah. And, and, and fire he observed man. personally, like how, you know, when you're driving down the highway, it's like kids would always like do the pull the hand down thing for trucks to like. And he actually did that for us. He like pulled his hand down and to make the like make the horn sound. So he Correct. he swapped it out and changed the story to have the truck. And he thought it'd be cool if the truck, you know, instead of having to build the bridge, you could completely get rid of the bridge part of it. He actually managed to find uh, the truck for $3,000 with the oil tanker part of it. So they didn't have to fabricate that. They could actually use one. Um, it turns out it is a, I have the type of truck there. Oh, come on. Oh, uh, he found a worn out white Freightliner WFC 12064T conventional truck with an oil tank. It's a 1975 or 1976 model. So if you want to build Catastrophe Cannon yourself, <laughs> you can go and get one of these white uh, Freightliner trucks and, and uh, reproduce it. As long as you get the 75 or 76. Because apparently in 77, Freightliner took it over and it was completely in the, the truck was a little different. <laughs> so um, so he, you can thank Bob for coming up with, with the idea of, of how it worked. Um, so he, they ended up winning not only the bid to manufacture the equipment, but actually install it as well. So Bob's company ended up installing everything except for the water tanks and the water mechanism. So thanks, Bob. That was awesome. There's one other long-standing question that I've had, and I'm sure other people had, was like, was there really a Mojave oil company? Because there's a very distinct logo that appears on the airplane and on the side of the truck. And then also at Oscar's gas station, 
the gasoline tanks have a Mojave. I don't know if they still do, but they used to have a Mojave oil logo. And it turns out that there actually is or was a Mojave oil company. Now, I don't know if that was their logo. It's plausible. But uh, on June 10th, 1918, the Mojave Oil Company was incorporated. Uh, I found uh, incorporation documents and then a September 1922, 1922 issue of Oil Age magazine talks about the company being headquartered in Milford, Utah. They had hmm. prospective permits and leases on 5,000 acres of land in Utah and prospective permits on 2,640 acres in Arizona. So it actually matches up to this Western, you know, canyon motif. Um, they operated nine wells, they owned a refinery, and they basically serviced the local market in Arizona and Utah. So rather than shipping oil all over in the West, actually companies would just set themselves up and just make gasoline and do the refinering for, for that area. Uh, which I thought was fascinating. Um, it was owned uh, by, later on, it was owned by a man named Robert Men Menskowski from 1967 to 1979. Then in 1979, it merged with the Mojave Petroleum Company uh, and formed, and a new entity was formed by a man named Keith Joule, who operated it uh, as a Mojave oil company until he passed away in 2008. And it appears that the company passed along with his founder because they filed their last annual report in 2008 as well. So, hmm. yes, Virginia, there is a Mojave oil company. So Look at that. There have been a couple of um, reproductions of uh, metal signs covered with porcelain. So you'd see mm -hmm. like the old Texaco signs. Like mm -hmm. um, there, there, were, there was one that came up for auction um, probably about five or six years ago that was stamped where the people interpreted it as a 1957 year, although it's, it says like SPSC-57. So I, I don't know if those were made for Disney MGM specifically or if they were, uh, if there actually was a logo for this company that Disney just found and picked up and used because, you know, nobody, they just figured nobody cared at that point. Um, so there's a couple of oddball things out there and uh we're gonna do a t-shirt of the mojave oil company logo uh oh nice that we'll have oh, that's so, awesome so uh so look for that in the store when this episode drops so that's that's catastrophe canyon we promised a deep dive and we're diving we deep. did it that was as deep as <laughs> as deep as we're gonna go um i lied to you i know i'm sorry you see we don't actually do any filming inside the canyon there's never been a movie made here Certainly not one called Catastrophe Canyon, but there's a real Hollywood special effects inside, and it was built exclusively for your enjoyment. As we pull around back here, I'll tell you how all of those catastrophes were created. All right, so we're out of Catastrophe Canyon. We're, we're coming back around. We're taking this long turn, and we're, we're going to go back to New York Street. Well, the nice thing about a backlight is that we can't go from the canyons of Southern California to the streets of New York City in about two minutes. That's where we're headed right now. Now, New York Street is pretty cool. Um, originally, you know, we called it the streets of America later on, but originally they just called it New York street and they just mentioned how it could be redressed to be any street in the world, or I should say any street in the United States. It was designed by uh, a production designer named Bill Krieber. He's actually nominated uh, on three occasions for Academy Awards for best art direction. He actually got an Oscar. Uh, I'm sorry, he got his Oscar nominations for work on the feature films The Greatest Story Ever Told, The Poseidon Adventure, and The Towering Inferno. 
And he was also hmm. the production designer on the Planet of the Apes movie. So that was kind of cool. Um, he actually designed and supervised the construction of New York Street as well as Residential Street for Disney and GM. And, and what the concept of, because it's it's gone now, right? It's completely eradicated. Right. Now it's Galaxy's Edge. So if you never got to see it, what it, what it was was about three blocks long. Uh, and it was a reproduction kind of of New York City. So you could stand at the end and there was a Washington Square arch and you could look straight down and they had real buildings for the first like two blocks. And then at the end were painted backdrops of like the Flatiron building and you could see the Chrysler building and I think the Empire State building uh, that were just painted flats on metal. Uh, and it looked kind of like you know, 1970s, 1980s era New York City. Um, pretty convincingly, I would say. I mean, especially if yeah. you, you look at photos, you know, not maybe not so much in real life, but it, on a camera, it like, looked fantastic. Take a look up to your weight. You'll see the steel structures that hold up our buildings on New York Street. Notice that they are covered with wood, fiberglass, and styrofoam. All of our buildings are built with Florida weather in mind. Think of Western hurricane force winds of over 100 miles an hour. It's pretty amazing since they are 80% styrofoam. And this is the time where nobody was walking through any part of New York Street. Yes. Anything. It was it was dead because it was a closed, hot set. Yeah, and, and I think in order to preserve that illusion, you couldn't have people... Because the whole thing was kind of done with forced perspective by the time you got to the end. So the, build, right. so the buildings that were supposed to look like, you know, 18 stories tall or maybe 100 foot tall or something. So if you had someone standing at the end of it, it, it broke the illusion it was also the tail end of the period of time where no one walked through actual New York either because it was still <laughs> extremely dangerous. Like, people don't realize downtown, like, even downtown Philadelphia, downtown New York, like, in the 70s and 80s, like, they, they were dangerous places to go before Good point. the rebirth and law and order and, yeah, cleaning up Times Square and just generally, you know, people taking back commerce and entertainment in the cities yeah so in in the interest of time because i know we're running along I, I won't go into excruciating detail about each of the buildings there we can we can do that another time but as todd said when you when this first opened up you were not allowed to walk on new york street at all your, your tram would go through it would show you you know one perspective it would do some turnarounds but uh you couldn't get there you, you couldn't get there on foot now that changed later on New York became New York Street became a little bit more wild. At first, it was it was completely closed off. You'd kind of come in, you could you could go up the street, and they would tell you about you know how how they make it look realistic. Yes, yeah, so what looks like brick and stone work is really just cement that's sprayed on the outside of the styrofoam. It's then hand carved, painted, and aged to make it look like it's been around for decades. And there were pawn shops and jewelry stores and the facades that looked like you know businesses. And if you went further down the street, there were things like a fake version of the one of the entrances to um, what is it, the Park Avenue Hotel? I mean, you wanted to walk, especially when they opened the street up later. Like you wanted to walk in there. You wanted to go into the corner shop. Uh, I know we found out when they demolished the buildings that the in the the, the groceries and like the the bodega that was there, or whatever, were actually like full like it wasn't just prop boxes like they were actual boxes of things oh gosh that were yeah 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 yeah. that's 
somewhat creepy in a way <laughs> well like f- fresh or just like stuff that had sat there and rotted over the course uh, well it was all shelf stables you know, oh. it was, you know boxes of crackers gotcha, gotcha, that, like gotcha. they, yeah, they didn't have like a ham hanging there <laughs> like that. you know there was no actual chinese food in the chinese food containers of the chinese restaurant like, gotcha all right and i i i think it i mean Burnbaum says it. There's a lot of other people said that the time that they spent creating um, the New York Street was was quite a bit. I mean, the, the amount of detail that they went into the, so especially the roads, the curbs, it, it it looked legitimate. It was it was pretty pretty good. I think the only thing that ever failed it for me is I I never thought that the first perspective at the end of the street was as good as it could have been, and maybe that was just due to the limited space. Um, it worked from way down far. Um, but I think even as you got halfway down the street, even when the tram took you down, there's like, yeah, I know that's flat. You know <laughs> yeah. I mean? it, it could have been done a little bit better, but you know, Hey, what, you know, the whole idea was that you could pull that down too, right? You didn't have to have the Chrysler building and empire stapling up there. You could easily change it, um, to be any city USA. Right. If you to. And I think one of the things that was, uh, I saw a brief interview with Bill Kreber and he talked about uh, on a lot of the other back lots, you know, you, you get like a block maybe. So he, yeah. he, and you might go down a quarter and it turns into like a quick T and there's, there's really not a lot there. Um, he was actually excited to be able to build something that had, you know, two or three blocks of length and be able to, to actually put the buildings down at the end. Cause typically on a real movie set, like they would never do that. They would just have someone do a matte painting or something later on and, and put that in there, but they would never bother to build you know, any kind of fake reproduction of the rest of the skyline to give you an idea that there was more city beyond the one block that you were sitting on. Right. So, right. so he, so really what we, what we had is we had East center street and West center street all over. Yeah, again. we kind of, we kind of <laughs> did. So, so you would drive through and then you'd see a little bit of the New York and then they tell you about what they were doing and how they weathered it and all that stuff. And then you would make a, a left-hand turn and you'd come down to Moynihan's freight company and sitting outside of the door there was the dip, the Dipmobile mm-hmm. from Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which was a big deal because that movie was hot stuff. <laughs> oh, it was. Back then. And it was cool. It was, I mean, it was the actual full-size large Dipmobile. And then you would oh, – and they also had a, another red car from Roger Rabbit out there. And then you'd make another turn and come back, and then you would kind of wind your way back down New York Street and around the – the Washington Square arch again, and then you'd go off to unload and and get out. Unfortunately, though, this does bring us to the very end of our tour. Please remain seated until the shuttle comes to a complete stop and the doors are fully open and stop moving. That was it for the first half of the tour uh, <laughs> for a long time. You you that was you, after that. It's like maybe you grabbed a quick bite to eat and then you started the post production tour. But uh, things changed. Very quickly. Very quickly in that area. Um, they've started, I think, probably by the end of the of 89 to start to let people into part of New York Street. Just to, I think, give you something to do. Because you really was, felt like you were trapped there for a bit. It was it was in August that I was there. And it was still dead. It okay. was still locked down at that point in August. Um, you know, and, and from what I could see is that they had a cop car down there and stuff. And it looks completely completely shut down so yeah yeah i remember one of the biggest changes was you would get off follow roger rabbit's feet you could get a bite to eat and actually go to the bathroom and i remember you know talking to people who were like oh better better figure out how you're gonna do it because you're gonna be on the tour for nearly four hours and it it 
by the time you waited in line and you this tour ran what about 20 25 minutes i think right for that segment yeah by the time you for drove this, around yeah. and did it yeah Right, so if you wait in line for 45 minutes, even to an hour, you got an hour and a half invested, and then you got another, you know, close to two-hour walking tour with finally a theater at the end where you get to sit down for the, for the yeah. first time since the since the tram tour. And there was no cutting out of this and back to the park. It's like your only way back oh, yeah. into the park was to go through the walking tour, the post-production you, walking tour. Right, you were committed, and later, like we said, very quickly that became, you know, that, that was changed that you could get a rest and you didn't have to continue your tour immediately um on board so yeah it's uh an interesting time and i i i have good memories of it um like i said i i really try to relate it a lot to uh what they were trying to up against and compete against with hollywood and the the whole vision of everything being a true working studio so i give them give them props for it it's time is is past in many ways (laughs) It's it's still it's important to note that back then, before behind the scenes YouTube videos of mm-hmm. every film that comes out, and before DVD extras that had fifty seven featurettes on whatever movie you just watched, showing you how it was made and how each effect was done, movie making magic was was just that. So yeah. being able to not have to go to California. And see it even in a in a staged uh, presentation for you, rather than an actual working studio. Uh, it was it was like mind blowing. So yeah. I mean, I, my my I remember my first reaction to New York Street. I mean, we're talking about was I, I was in a picture that Rob brought back uh, from one of his trips after it opened because I didn't see this the studios until six years after they opened. But I, like he showed me this, and he's like that's a painting at the end of the street. Cause I was staring at it like, Oh wow, look at this city. And then, like, it, like it didn't, it didn't register to me. Uh, so I, you know, I think it's it, today it would seem quaint. Uh, but back then you really felt like, wow, I'm, I'm behind the scenes here. Like, you know, Ted Danson's could walk around the corner at any minute, you know, with a production assistant between scenes. Yeah. No, that's, that's definitely true. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was just the beginning of carrying cameras around, too. You know, portable camcorders were, were a thing. You, you know, A lot of the green screen you couldn't do. We're going to talk about that when we do the walking tour, right? You, you couldn't do this stuff. Now people are just producing it. Um, I think one of the only other existing tram tours that's still out there, right? Universal Studios Hollywood still has their tour. I mean, you are going through some legitimate yep, stuff. But they, do. they have added on. Obviously, a bunch of stage a, stuff. Yeah, exactly. You got Jaws and King Kong and the, the what was and that? The that rotating. Fast and the Furious now. Fast and yeah. the Furious is there now. They had some rotating lava thing back in the late '90s too. So, you know, they really have catered more towards you know what's going to happen. Let's make it a thrill attraction. So, like I said, I have great memories. I remember getting up really early and getting over there. These pre-fast pass days, your fast pass was as fast as you could walk. <laughs> right, and and even and after you... this time, it, there were some changes. Um, around '98, they they started you off in a different location. I think where the drop-off point was, um, yep. and then your cars approached the Eiffel Tower from the other side instead of the side it was on. They would throw uh, like were different. They kind of rearranged the boneyard and took some cars out. The, one of the weirdest things I found was in the mid two thousands. They, um, because you had to drive by this kind of abandoned parking lot now in order to get back around to where the 
the costuming was because now you're coming mm. from the far side of the costuming instead of the so you're not coming from the disney animation studio side now you're coming from the side where you get let off by you they found this like empty parking lot and they took some of the they turned it into what looked like a parking lot for props so they had um they had parking spaces that were de- designated for different things and they had the stagecoach and the ice wagon and the chariot from world of motion each in a parking spot marked like stagecoach chariot chariot parking stagecoach parking <laughs> um they had one of the flight of the navigator ships there in the parking lot they had a carpet like a from aladdin parked in oh, a parking really? spot yeah is this when they had and the a, uh, the the planes from pearl harbor too back there that was next okay. so after after some, they got sick of this and they put the pearl harbor planes in that spot and they had a pumpkin which i assume is waiting to be transformed into cinderella's coach oh, i see like in a parking spot and then there was an empty parking spot for herbie but herbie wasn't there because he had left early he broke down i mean it was really starting <laughs> starting to be a bit of a stretch but uh the tram tour lasted until september 27th 2014 and then uh that was it it was done I got something interesting here, How is that when I wrote my book years ago, I would always keep up to date on, on the times that each attraction uh, would run. Um, and it's funny because I was just looking through this is, I think, my 2000 edition. It says the now canceled Golden Girls. Uh, it says that the tour, the tram tour was about 35 minutes and the walking tour at that point had been cut down to 30 minutes. Wow. Yeah. So which is really interesting. So it's amazing how much has uh, changed. But yeah. So we will eventually, what do you think, how later this year we will continue on our, we'll do the walking tour? Sure, yeah. We'll talk, we'll we'll do one on New York Street and the different things you could experience there, like Ace Ventura and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Oh, the Ninja Turtles, the Dipmobile, all the Roger Rabbit stuff that was there. Because after all, what is this year? The year of the film. The year of the film, so. I I would like, you know, know, in the walking tour, you walk through that, that warehouse room with like all the props behind the mesh, you know, the metal. I'd like pictures yeah. of that from people, but like with little arrows pointing to what movies different things were from. Because <laughs> as a kid, are, I'd yeah. walk through and I'd see, you know, one thing, but I, you didn't know what 99% of no, it was. That's, no that's a job right there. Yeah. And, there yeah. Was, and it changed so often, mm-hmm. too. And there was a lot of stuff, especially in the special effects room before you got into the room with the B. There was a ton of really cool stuff in that room. So. That'd be one of those things where I I wish someone had really good clear pictures and there's there's some decent video but it was pretty dark it, like if someone ever took flash pictures of that whole room that would have been amazing because that was just stuffed to the gills with really cool props and things. All right, well with that said, we're gonna wrap it up. But um, you know, JT, you mentioned photos. A call out for photos. Jason, our webmaster, has been working on a new part of the gallery for the Disney MGM Studios because we are into that 30-year zone. So it's certainly something that we're going to be talking about more of now that we've kicked, kind of kicked it off more here. Um, so if you do have photos of your backlot tours and everything from you know about 25 to 30 years ago, do let us know. Send them in. You can email us at, uh, at podcast at retrowww.com and we can give you a link where you can upload those photos to us we'd love to include them on the site uh tag them and add them into the search like we were talking about so whole separate thing and then all of our volunteers will realize there's five thousand more photos for them to <laughs> <take>. so, <laughs> 
But how you already talked about a shirt coming up, which is great. Um, so we'll get that out there pretty soon. Uh, I know we haven't had some new ones before. I know the McFarkle t-shirt is being worked on by Reese. Uh, so how, I don't know if you followed that conversation or saw her I have been. early art. I'm so, I'm so impressed. Yep. Yep. So we're going to be getting that out at some point. Uh, other than that, we will choose a place to go next month uh, offline here. I think we're, we're burning. We just turned midnight. So the midnight oil has officially been lit. Um, so we will figure out where we're going next month. And, uh, and if you're interested in helping support the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, please head to lakelbvhistory.org. Just click the donate button. All the proceeds that we receive go directly to keeping this show on the air, keeping the website up, and uh, getting some more films. Of which, guys, I've got a pile of 8mm films and 16mm. They're going to be going off for uh, digital uh, transfer pretty soon. So we've got a lot of stuff coming. And this is the year of the film. We're working on a logo. We're going to be kicking that off just shortly. JT, you've, you've released, what, the ni- 1994 Marathon. We've got the Backlot Tour we're releasing, and then Brian's working on the schedule for us for the next couple months. Yeah, if you subscribe to us on YouTube and you're a YouTuber, uh, hit the bell so you're alerted when a new video releases because we have so many, and I know we have a schedule in mind, but there's certain times I just want to just, let's just get it out there so people can watch it. So it's just going it to, they could just appear... <laughs> Whenever we have free time, there's not going to be really any set hour of the day. We're not very close to getting the golden button of the million subscribers. Is that our ultimate we'll, goal? We're, we're, golden yeah, button? we're trying for maybe the silver play button, which I think is like 100,000 <laughs> subs or something like that. So we'll, we'll go for that first. Right now we're at an injection molded plastic right now. Something from Moldorama button. Well, so. we're at uh, about 4,400 subscribers. I would like to break 5,000 in the next couple months here. So if you're not a subscriber, yeah, help you can us do meet it, that JT. goal. I you can do it. It's, it's your, not me. It's, it's the fans. They're the ones. It's that you. Help That's me. true. It's all of you. Yeah, we're sit- the official meter here is forty four ninety as of. Uh, fu- all right. And climbing. So yeah, the more the better. Join the party. Lots of fun stuff. It's we can release some. What is it, Todd? Every week for the next three years. Uh, every week for the next year and a half. We could have something new. So yeah. we we're shooting for that at least, and then some. Yeah, it might even yeah, it might even be close to two years at this point because we've got more stuff coming in. But uh, we're closing in on fifteen thousand Facebook Facebook subscribers. And uh, again, if you can give us a shout out or a review on iTunes, uh, all donations are appreciated as well. And with that, we'll see you next month. Brian, take us out. Follow the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society on Twitter and Instagram at LBV History and on the web at lbvhistory.org. Follow Todd McCartney and RetroWDW on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at RetroWDW. For all things Retro Disney World, including exclusive merchandise, visit us on the web at RetroWDW.com. On Twitter, follow our web designer, Jason Bartell of Deepwater Studios, at JasonDWS. Our announcer, Andre Gardner, at Andre Gardner. And follow our hosts, Hal Bowers, on Twitter and Instagram, at GoAwayGreen and on the web at kingdomofmemories.com. For JT Couser on Twitter, at LS1JT, on YouTube at Rubber City Motoring, and on the web at rubbercitymotoring.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at Brian P. Miles. Retro Disney World is the monthly podcast of the Lake Buena Vista Historical Society, a nonprofit, nonpartisan, tax-exempt 501c3 organization and is not affiliated in any way with the Walt Disney Corporation or any of its subsidiary or affiliated entities.
Jim, and on behalf of our driver, John, everyone say thanks, John! My name's Alana. We'd like to thank you for joining us on the backstage studio tour and enjoy the rest of your day at the Disney MGM Studios.